Coming up next, The Crunch with Cam Slater. Conversations with a side of controversy. Every Thursday from 4pm, right here on RCR. Reality Check Radio. People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all the separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behavior and patterns of behavior? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. This is The Crunch with Cam Slater. Conversations with a side of controversy, right here on RCR. Welcome to The Crunch on Reality Check Radio. I'm your host, Cam Slater, and this is the place we crunch the political issues and cut through the politician's spin. Well, we're back in the thick of it again this week. First up, I've got Kirsten Murphitt. And she's hot on attack against the WHO and their pandemic treaties. Whatever we chat about how you can all help let the government know how we think. I'll let Kirsten tell you about her initiatives, but check out voicesforfreedom.co.nz forward slash feedback dash who dash treaties for some handy templates to assist you in giving feedback. That's voicesforfreedom.co.nz forward slash feedback dash who treaties. And then I'll chat with Morris Williamson about what the hell is going on at Auckland Council, Auckland Transport, and about the removal of the Auckland fuel excise by the government. Of course, we'll have the mailbag to get your feedback, and we'll close out the show with Cam's buddies on what a treasure Lindley was for us all. She's a keeper. Don't forget to send comments to inbox at realitycheck.radio or text to 2057. You're listening to The Crunch with Cam Slater. Right here on RCR. Reality Check Radio. In case you weren't aware, you're listening to Reality Check Radio, where we dive deep into the realm of free speech, unfiltered, and unapologetic. Today, I'm tackling a topic that lies at the very core of our existence here at Reality Check Radio, the absolute 
freedom of speech. No ifs, buts, or maybes. Now let's get one thing straight. Freedom of speech is not a concept we take lightly. It's the cornerstone of a free and democratic society, the bedrock upon which diverse ideas flourish and conversations evolve. Here at Reality Check Radio, we embrace this principle wholeheartedly. And that means you'll hear a wide array of views and ideas, some of which you might vehemently disagree with. And that's okay. We live in a world where the echo chambers of social media and cancel culture are becoming increasingly prevalent. People seem more inclined to silence dissenting opinions rather than engage in meaningful dialogue. But that's not what we're about here. Reality Check Radio is a haven for unrestricted expression, a place where ideas clash, perspectives collide, and the power of free speech reigns supreme. You see, the beauty of absolute freedom of speech is that it doesn't come with terms and conditions. There are no asterisks. There are no fine print. It's an all-encompassing principle that allows for the exchange of ideas, no matter how uncomfortable they may be. But there's the catch. It's a two-way street. If you want to express your opinions, you must also be willing to listen to others even those you fundamentally disagree with. Now, I know it can be challenging to hear views that challenge your own beliefs. It's human nature to seek validation and surround ourselves with like-minded individuals. But true growth and understanding comes from engaging with diverse perspectives. And that's what sets Reality Check Radio apart. Our commitment to fostering an environment where open-mindedness prevails. Let's address the elephant in the room, though, deplatforming and the culture of outrage. In recent times, we've witnessed a disturbing trend where individuals or groups attempt to silence those they disagree with by shutting them down on social media platforms or other means. Here's the thing. That goes against the very essence of free speech. The moment we start silencing voices or censoring opinions we don't agree with, we stifle the rich tapestry of ideas that make our society vibrant. Reality Check Radio stands as a bulwark against such tendencies. We won't shy away from presenting controversial viewpoints, and we won't bow to pressure to conform to this or that idea. This is a platform for the fearless, the curious, and those who value the unfiltered pursuit of truth. It's crucial to remember that freedom of speech is not about protecting popular opinions. It's about safeguarding the right to express opinions, no matter how unpopular they may be. And so when you tune in to Reality Check Radio, expect to be challenged. Expect to be uncomfortable at times. But above all, expect to experience the raw, unadulterated power of free speech. In conclusion, my fellow truth seekers. Let's celebrate the unbridled freedom of speech that Reality Check Radio embodies. Disagreements will happen, and that's perfectly okay. What's not okay is succumbing to the temptation of shutting down those who challenge us. Instead, let's engage in open, respectful dialogue and embrace the diversity of thought that makes our world so fascinating. If I can do it, 
then so can you. Thank you for joining us on Reality Check Radio, where the pursuit of truth knows no bounds. Stay curious, stay open-minded, and most importantly, stay free. We've had Kirsten Murphy on The Crunch before. Back then, we talked about her New Zealand First candidacy. This week, though, we're going to talk about the WHO's pandemic treaties and what she's been working on and what you can do to help. Now, don't forget, we can provide you with some templates on this by visiting voicesforfreedom.co.nz forward slash feedback who treaties for some handy templates that will assist you in giving that feedback. Meanwhile, Kirsten Murphy joins me now. Welcome back to The Crunch, Kirsten. Good to have you back. Hi, Cam. How are you? Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year to you. Uh, things are a little different now. Obviously, you didn't make it into Parliament, but you've been busy, haven't you? I've been very, very busy. <laughs> so tell us what you've been up to, and uh, and then we'll, we'll discuss all of that. So, basically... Well, as soon as the election ended and it was clear that I wasn't getting into Parliament via the list, even though I was number two in the top 15, which mm. I was very proud of for my first time running, I decided to get stuck into the international health regulations. So I started a petition um, and within, I think, just under three weeks, there were 26,000 signatures. Wow. So that was amazing timing and I sent it to the team, but I didn't realise that Winston was actually going to take it to the negotiation table, which he did. And we managed to get the first... I was first going to ask that. I was going to ask how closely are you working still with Winston and the team at New Zealand First? I've been sending them a lot of information, but I know they're incredibly busy. So yeah. I'm here for when they're ready to reach out to me. Yeah. But we're not in direct daily conversations. Okay. Yeah. All right. No, that's, that's cool. I mean, I've always found them very approachable. They'll They'll take information. They might not do anything with it immediately, but it's all information and data points that they can feed into the system. So, yes, Winston, so Winston take... put this into the negotiations and squeezed yes. Luxon's nuts, so to speak. <laughs> well, I'm not quite sure what went on, but <laughs> <laughs> that's an image I can't get out of my head. Um, so, yes, we managed to get the 1st of December amendment. It was actually rejected. There was a whole lot of debate about whether it was reserved or rejected mm. under the Official Information Act. Uh, the government's come back to me and said it was rejected. Right, so that's a good clarification because there was a lot of people people saying, "Oh, that doesn't that's weasel words that that hasn't done anything." But what you're saying is that New Zealand actually rejected in total those health regulations. No, the first of December amendment, which is the reduced time frame. Ah, yes. So the time frame is 24 months, and it's yep. been reduced to 12 months. But in New Zealand's case, because we've rejected it, it's 18. Yeah, it's 18 months. Right, so so that's that's a little. So we've got way. more time. Yeah. So what Winston has done is actually brought us more time to consider this, and given it's such a significant treaty and the implications, every single month we've got to get this out is a good thing. Okay, but just wanted to give us a, a recap on what all these regulations involve and why it's important that we do um, submit on this and we do do some of the things that you're going to you're going to suggest to listeners. So the international health regulations have been around since I think the 1960s and there's been various amendments during the time. There were some significant amendments in 2005 and so the ones that we're dealing with at the moment we actually refer to as the international health regulations 2005. Within that they've got article 18 which is a very important article 
And that is where the COVID-19 response from around the world stemmed from, which had the ability to do um, mandating, the ability to quarantine, the ability to vaccinate. So that's already in there. That's existing right now. Yeah. For some reason, they decided that the response to COVID-19 wasn't as strong as they wanted, so they decided to review. And so that was back in 2002. And all the countries that wanted to put in their submissions and said what they were 2022? Oh, sorry, 2022. You're quite right. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> sorry, I was a bit confused yeah. there. I thought maybe yeah. I need a TARDIS to go. To go. <laughs> no, I haven't had my coffee today. Yeah. So no, 2022, I do apologise. That's okay. So then they compiled that, and that's what we're looking at at the moment. There's a public document which has compiled all the various amendments, and that's been put out publicly. So that's what we've looked at, and there's over 300 amendments, there's some new annexures, and there's some really concerning things in there. And the way that I explain it in layman's language is that we've already had a response under Article 18. Mm -hmm. So if they're going to strengthen Article 18 and bring in more, it's going to be like COVID on steroids, the next oh. pandemic, and the hinting that there is going to be another pandemic. How they know there's going to be another pandemic I'm not quite sure, given that they are very rare things in history. About every once every hundred years. Yeah, so I would hope not to see another one in my lifetime, although they're hinting that I probably will. So the things I'm really concerned about is under international law, you've got to have an intention. Well, just like with the contract law, as you know, there's got to be an intention to create a legally binding document. Yeah. So quite often with treaties, they will actually say that they're not binding if they're not meant to be binding. So the current regulations actually have the word non-binding in there for the standing recommendations and the temporary recommendations. Yeah. And under the current draft that we've seen, they've removed the words non-binding. They've also put a whole lot of other stuff in there as well, which we can go through. But my biggest concern was I wrote to the ministry and said, I want to see the latest copy of the draft because the last one was released in February 2023, so just over a year ago. And they've been working behind closed doors since that time, having secret meetings. There's been no transparency, no due process. So I asked for a copy and I got the OIA response back on the 8th of February. And it said, a copy of the latest WHO regulations, just shorten that, is withheld in full under Section 6B2 of the Act as its release would prejudice information entrusted to the government of New Zealand on a basis of confidentiality by an international organisation. But you can have the latest publicly available one, which is the old one. So how can I even do a submission if I don't know what I'm submitting on? It's farcical. There are ways around that. Um, you can get questions of ministers, which are outside of the Official Information Act. Yeah. And that's one way to do it, and that I've found successful. But, yeah, it sounds a bit sneaky and furtive, doesn't it? Especially when in their blurb on the website they say it's a once-in-a-generation global health security reform. That's Just think about that for a second. Yeah, a once-in-a-generation global health security reform for a significant global health agreement. But I'm not allowed to see it. You're not allowed to see it. Yeah, we're not allowed to discuss it. You've got to work mm. off that one. That's the old one. Yeah, but we're doing the public consultation tick. 
Well, I mean, I, I'm I'm incredibly cynical about public consultation. Um, you know, I, I've seen, especially what the last government did, uh, mm-hmm. and in particular around firearms laws, where they had basically a week for submissions, and then if you said I want to uh, submit in person, it was a very limited number of people who could do that. Uh, the overwhelming submissions that they had was against the regulations that they wanted to bring in, but they did it anyway. And so, you know, it, it, it can, this whole process of submitting can be disheartening um, oh, in many respects. But I think it's very important that people do submit because if you don't, then they turn around and say, well, we had uh, no submissions on this. And so we've implemented what we think is good. I agree 100% with you on submissions, and it is very disheartening. But we need to send a very strong message to the government mm. that we see them and we see what's going on. Yeah, so, I mean, hopefully with um, with New Zealand First in there pushing on this, we may get some actual reform around this process, uh, seeing that submissions actually and submitters do get listened to. Yeah. Um, but um, we do have to do it and people have to take some time out. It might be 30 seconds, it might be 10 minutes, but people need to take time out and actually submit. Absolutely. So I've done a cheat sheet, which I've put up on my Twitter and Facebook, uh-huh. and I'm pretty sure Voices have done something similar as well. Yes, they've, they've got something similar where they've got some templates and some sort of suggested um, responses and and all of that. So as I've as as um, you know, my grandmother used to say, "Many hands make light work." You're doing some work. <laughs> Voices are doing some work, and Reality Cheat Radio uh, amplifies that um, on both sides. Exactly. So, so, what do you, what what do you want our listeners to do? I want them first of all to submit um, a submission between now and Sunday. The submission was well, basically a survey that they have up. It's a little bit different to normal submissions. Mm-hmm. So I think we've got to midnight on Sunday night. Yeah, just get that message out there. Ask other people to do it as well. Then I want people to actually be making meetings to go and see their local politicians spreading the word amongst their friends, because lots of people don't understand what is happening. And on the 27th of May through to the 31st of May is the World Health Assembly annual meeting where this will be voted on. If it's voted in, it doesn't mean it's all over. We will still have um, another 12 months to consider. Sorry, is it 12 months? 18 months, sorry. I always get confused because New Zealand's different. So the rest of the world has 10 and we've got 18 months to consider. So we've got the ability to opt out and that's where we really, really need to put the pressure on. So I'm working with um, quite a lot of the well-known international players in this area. Yeah, They do believe that the 51% will be achieved in May. So there's, there's over 300 amendments to the international health regulations, isn't there? That's correct. And so this is quite a complex thing for people to get their head around, but the key points would be a continuation of or an entrenching almost of the draconian regulations that were implemented worldwide by various different regimes, including the Ardun regime, that involve mandates and involve various different things like lockdowns and all of those sorts of things. That's all part of these amendments to, to strengthen that up so there'll be no arguments. This is what you'll be doing. We know best because we're the who. Well, the strengthening who's powers and they're basically transferring our ability in New Zealand to decide our public health response across to Geneva 
So when they issue their recommendations, which now the words non-binding have been taken out, which would imply that they are now binding, yeah. we have to follow these. And they're really badly drafted. So for one example, where they're talking about health products, they just put in gene therapy, but there's no definition of what gene therapy is. And I'm sure you've probably looked at legislation before as you start at a high level and it drills down and you keep going down definition after definition after definition. So what does this gene therapy mean? And why are they being so vague about it? They've got probably some of the best lawyers in the world working on it, but it looks like it's been written by a person that's done one-on-one legal practice. It's a junior somewhere along the line. <laughs> well, they seem to be very good at other technicalities because with section, sorry, article 55, where they were meant to release the latest draft on the 27th of January to give the state members four months to consider, that appears not to have happened. But given the OIA saying that they're withholding information from me, maybe they did actually give that information out to the state parties, but they've just haven't made it public. There's sovereignty issues at, at stake here, isn't there? Um, if this all gets passed and it's binding, then the WHO can declare a health emergency, or and it might not even be real. They might say there might be a public health emergency, and so we're going to do these things to try and mitigate that so that we don't end up with a public health emergency. And they can have the power then to order countries, including New Zealand, to have lockdowns, travel restrictions, forced medical examinations, mandatory vaccinations, and all the individual human rights and the rights of a country seem to be thrown out the window. And we've got this bunch of globalists led by a communist who's the head of WHO telling us what we can and can't do. Yes. Am I wrong in, in that? No, somewhere? essentially you are right. It's just there is a process behind it. So it's not mm. that we just automatically give up our sovereignty, but it's Article 59 that says we've got to integrate them into our domestic law, just like we had integrated the 2005 amendments into our, our domestic law. And if we don't do that, then we've actually got to report back to who within 12 months saying why we haven't. And also so it's get told off. Yeah, there isn't any actual financial implications or penalties at the moment, but they have been talking about that in recent years of bringing in financial penalties. So who knows what's in this latest round of amendments? Because we who haven't. Know, seen. Who knows who? Who knows who? Who trusts who? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right. So that's not. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's kind of alarming. If you're a freedom type person, and it's bad enough that we live in a society where we've got. Um, you know, governments that can lock us down when we're perfectly healthy, uh, mm -hmm. restrict where we can go, uh, breach the Bill of Rights, uh, make illegal acts, and there's no penalties anywhere in all of that. But if you break their illegal lockdowns and things like that, well, we'll drag you through the courts and we'll prosecute you and we'll sack you and we'll get you out of your job. Um, well, this is a bit I'm really, really concerned about. So if who becomes the global architecture of health responses, which under the pandemic treaty will also include climate change, they basically own the science narrative. So that will be trickled down into the international courts and also trickled down into our domestic courts, just like it did over the mandates. We all knew that they were breaching human rights, 
but they were yeah. saying because the science, this is the science and there is the one podium of truth, it had to, I mean, if we lived in a different environment, I don't think any of those court decisions would have come through. Well, this, and what, this is what concerns me because if you've got a, a global organisation like the WHO making these sorts of decisions and then you've got these little busybodies out there like the WEF mm. who are advocating for digital currencies and control and all of those sorts of things, if you move those two things together, digital currencies, uh, the ability to freeze your funds to control what you can spend money on, uh, do all of those things, then the WHO could say, well, you know, we're really worried about climate change here um, and we don't want people to fill up their car more than once every three weeks. So um, with a digital currency, we're just going to block you um, from using your card to pay for fuel um, and you can only do it once every three weeks. They could do that, couldn't they? There's a real risk of that because one, in their, the draft that I've seen, they talk about the vaccine passports and they want them to be digital and to be on a specific platform and if you research further, they've actually already got a contract out with a provider. So when do we get to say that? Where is this provider? Where is our information going to be held? What are the privacy implications of that? Mm. Also, as we know, if you've got a platform, you can just tack on little bits over time. So what you're saying is actually a real possibility. Mm. See, I mean, uh, when I say things like that to people, they go, oh, Cam, you're batshit crazy. They'll never do that. That's not what it's about. It's just about... Um, convenience and you, you've got private companies out there now that, that won't accept cash anymore. Mm. There's plenty of cafe chains, they say they're cash only. Take the Fuller's Ferry in Auckland, for example, you can't go and buy a Coke for five bucks with cash, you have to use a card. This is the real problem with treaties like this and regulations like this if they then link uh, digital IDs with digital currency and digital accounts and have them all linked together, they can actually, at, literally, at the press of a button, shut you down. Absolutely. And I think people, even though they might say it's a conspiracy theory, look at what's happened in the last four years. When I did my first open letter to government, which I think was the 25th of August 2001, I spoke about the vaccine passports, and I was told I was an absolute conspiracy theorist. Oh, no, we're not going to do that. Nuts. What happened a couple of months later? Well, I mean, you know, I've, I published on my site on the BFD, um, you know, Ardern, when she said there's been lots of rumours out there about lockdowns and they're not true unless you hear it from from us, um, you know, at, at, at the podium, uh, it's not true. Uh, you know, we need to be very mindful of things uh, that unless you hear it from us, then it's uh, disinformation, it's a conspiracy theory, and it's not happening. And literally within 48 hours, there was old flappy arms uh, behind her desk in her office at the Beehive telling us all that what we heard two days ago was actually all bullshit. And she was about to lock us all down because we had one case in the whole country out of 5 million people. We had one case. And so for that reason, you all need to stay at home. It was yes. insane. And they all did it. And that was just a couple of days after Tedros has actually written personally to Ardern and we received that letter under the Official Information Act quite early on. Mm. But it was a conspiracy theory. See, that's the thing. There's all these things that we were saying out mm. loud and they were saying, no, you're nutters, you're cookers, you know, you're conspiracy theorists. And I got to the point where I coined a bit of a phrase on, on my site 
saying, you know, what's the difference between a conspiracy theory and reality? And the answer I had was three months. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got a bit cheeky a couple of weeks ago with the hot weather. Someone was calling me a cooker, so I just put a photo of myself in my bikini looking quite good going, yeah, I'm, I'm a cooker. <laughs> yeah. Roasting nicely. Yeah. <laughs> Roasting nicely. And then, I've and got then, to have a bit of fun with it. <laughs> well, I mean, then we had Niwa saying, oh, um, it's a very hot day today, and I'm looking at the temperature going, it's 25 degrees. Like, what? It's summer. Oh, no, stay inside. Keep your kids inside. What a oh, I, used, like, I lived in Auckland when I was little, but we used to always go down to my nana's in um, Napier at Christmas. We'd spend, like, the whole Christmas holidays there. In it would be easily 30 degrees. Like, the ash belt used to melt. It'd be so hot. Yeah. I'm 51 years old. So, yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> I can remember today. my teenage years and, you know, summer yeah. would come along and we knew that summer was here when all of the volcanic cones in Auckland turned brown and um, there wasn't a cloud in the sky for weeks on end and that was what summer was like. You know, now we're told, oh, no, climate change. Ooh. Exactly. But the WHO could use these regulations to you know, under the pretense that there's a climate emergency. Yeah, under the pandemic treaty, they've got the climate change within that. What we expect may happen, because it seems strange there's two international instruments on the table, is they might have put one instrument out to be sort of a bit of a distraction, and then the instrument that's been working behind the closed doors, which is the international health regulations, they might be bringing that through, so they might be meshing the two documents together. Yeah, but we're so, not going so to just recap here, because it can get yeah. confusing, right? There's the yeah. WHO pandemic agreement. Yeah, right? which has been called a number of different names, which confuses people even more. It's had about five different names. At the moment, it's called the Pandemic Accord. Yeah. But you'll hear the Pandemic Treaty, the Pandemic Agreement, et cetera, and that is just the one document. Yeah. And that's... So that's when they talk about One Health, where... One Health, yes. Where WHO will aim to sustainably balance and optimise the health of people, animals and ecosystems. Yeah. There's your climate change controls right there, isn't it? Exactly. And then the international health regulations are existing international health regulations. And even though they're called regulations, they're actually technically a treaty and they are the ones that are being amended at the moment. And we've got to be very careful because, behind, I mean, who, when you look at the history, it probably started out as quite a good idea. Mm. Um, and the state parties contributed, but over the years, and there's a really good documentary from 2017 that I have on my Facebook page and also on Twitter, where they look at the history of who, and they look at the tobacco. So even though we knew from about 1950s tobacco wasn't good, the who wouldn't come out because of the vested interests. Yeah. Then we also look at um, the swine flu and also um, Fuka, oh, what's the... So I've just lost the place in Japan where they had the earthquake. Uh, Fukushima? Yeah, Fukushima. Sorry, I'm just so tired today. So there are so many vested interests because it's not just the state parties. State parties, through their assessed voluntary, uh, sorry, the assessed contribution, only give 16% of whose budget. And the rest of that is made up with voluntary contributions and also vested interests such as the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and also Garvey which Bill and Melinda Gates also contribute to. So there's a lot of control and people that are giving the money, it doesn't just go into a pool and then there's a vote about how it's used. Whoever gives the money can say where the money's going to be used. And this is very concerning given that now CEPI, which is also if you just follow the money and all the links and all the people, 
um, is now looking at developing 100-day vaccines. So what we're looking at here is handing control, essentially, to the oligarchs. Pretty much, in my view. And so for a small investment within WHO, if they can direct the money to be used in the way that they want to, it can actually be a very good investment for them. See, I can see in the future we end up with another thalidomide. We've already got that. Mm. I believe that's where we're heading with you know, the so-called COVID vaccines. Eventually, the weight of evidence is going to crush uh, the ability to silence people. Mm. Um, but in the process, billions of people have poisoned themselves at the behest mm-hmm. of politicians who know nothing and vested interests via the WHO. Well, this documentary is so interesting because it goes into politics as well and how the politicians are lobbied, <laughs> for want of a nicer word. Yeah. So I would recommend everyone watch that and share it with people because it shows that we're actually not nutcases. That how can you find that? How can they find that documentary? So it's on my Twitter page. I can pin it to the top and also my Facebook page. So it's called Trust Who. And it is the second one down my page. It's actually very, very difficult to find. Um, it was available, strangely, on TVNZ, but um, they took it off then just before the pandemic. Maybe it had reached its shelf life. Right. So that, so that was a documentary. It was made in 2016. Yes, that's correct. So it's Trust Who as who. one word. Yeah. And so if they just Google Trust Who with one word, you should be able to get information about where to watch that. Um, yeah, it is on YouTube, but as I said, it's difficult to find. So it looks like it's on Vimeo as well. Okay, great. Yeah. So it does come up when you search. Oh, great. Yep. So trust who, one word, and put the word documentary after it, and um, right. you'll be able to find it. So, so yeah, people should watch that. Now, what else do you want them to do, Kirsten? You're, you're one a one-man band, so to speak, one-woman band um, yeah. pushing this. Yeah, actually, I'm not now. Yeah. So, well, apart, you know, there are people in New Zealand that are helping. Voices for Freedom, obviously, but you know, you're out there very vocal on this. So, you know, that's why we're talking to you. Yeah, <laughs> I have been quite vocal. Yeah. Um, I'm talking to a well-known New Zealander at the moment, and we're planning a little project. So that's been worked on the background. So hopefully in the next couple of weeks, there will be an announcement. I'm also looking about whether we do a referendum. There's pros and cons of doing a referendum. Lots of people would love me to do a referendum of Exit the Who. The pros are, well, it would be amazing if we achieved it, but I think it's going to be hard to get a lot of New Zealanders on board with that because most New Zealanders don't understand the issues. Yeah, I need to get 10% of the voting population to sign. It's hard. So we've got just over 3.6 registered million, obviously, um, voters sort of get, have to get over 360,000 signatures. Yeah, or 380 or so to to weed out any fake ones or anything like that. It's, it's, yeah, it's, and a, it's then, not easy to do. No, it's not. And then even if we got that, government doesn't have to do anything about it. <laughs> so I actually think it will be better for me to focus on the international health regulations, which seem to be going through, because we can show people without any conspiracy theories lack of transparency, lack of rule of law. There's been no forecasting about how much this is going to cost. And one overseas study has said that it's going to cost $124 billion per nation to implement. I think the average Joe blog on the streets can understand that. 
So I think it's probably going to be more successful to go on that avenue. And via doing that avenue, they will learn other information about her as well. So let's just put this into perspective, right? Mm-hmm. $124 billion, most people's eyes glaze over when they hear numbers like that. And let's say we have a pallet and we have a million dollars cash on that pallet. Mm-hmm. That's 124,000 pallets of cash. That's huge. <laughs> right? That's 124 pallets of a million dollars lined up to get $124 billion. For a pandemic that may or may not happen, and in my lifetime have been very rare. Well, in my lifetime, there's only been one. And there's not many people who were around um, in in 1918 for the flu pandemic. No. And again, you know, we were told there was, you know, all of these things was going to be terrible, all these people were going to die, and, you know, we needed to save 80,000 people and, we didn't even get close. Exactly. I was reading something from Helen Clark yesterday because I've been doing a bit of a retro thing on my Twitter. Better you than me. Yeah. And she was saying 20 people a day would die. And this is in 2022. But 20 people a day die anyway. I know. <laughs> right? Well, this is the joke of it, right? During the pandemic, we had no deaths from influenza. Mm. When, when in any given year... There's normally about 500. Mm. Well, well, how did that happen? How did we go from 500 a year to none? Did did the flu cease to exist? Of course not. Of course not. Yeah, it was it was farcical. Mm. But they've just brainwashed so many people and indoctrinated. Like when my husband, he as you know, he's been sick and another emergency trip last August to the hospital. It was clear he could not breathe. As he'd been diagnosed with heart failure, I knew it was his heart. Mm. The triage nurse wanted to put a mask on him. And I went, why would you put a mask on a man that can't breathe, that's got heart failure? And then they wanted to do a COVID test. And I was like, no, you take this man through to emergency now. And as soon as I saw him, they took him straight to recess. I I had a similar experience, not as drastic, obviously. Um, uh, I stood up in the middle of the night and blacked out. And on the way down, um, I hit the sink and uh, covered in blood and everything. I went into the hospital and uh, while I was in the hospital in the emergency area, you know, they said, oh, you need to put a mask on. I said, oh, I'm not doing that. You know, I, I keeled over. Um, you mm-hmm. know, I've got a problem with that. I'm, I'm pretty dehydrated. Uh, all of that. They couldn't put a line in me. So I knew that I was dehydrated because they couldn't see any veins or anything like that to stick a needle in me. And then I passed out again uh, there, and they chucked me onto a um, onto a bed, and I'm told this by somebody who was with me. And at the same time they did that while I was unconscious, they jammed a um, PCR thing up my nose and tested oh, right? And then, you know, six hours later, after an X-ray and a CT scan, all of this was going on, then they declare to me that, oh, you've got COVID. And then they locked me in a room by myself at the hospital. Well, I checked myself out the next day because I felt better. Um, they came to me and said, oh, you know, uh, we'll give you packs of it. I said, oh, it's all right. I've got my own stuff. Well, what's that? And I said, oh, ivermectin. Oh, <laughs> and next morning I was a box of birds and I checked myself out of the hotel, and, uh, out of the hospital and walked out. Yeah, I was glad you got out there. You know, 
Um, That's crazy just how indoctrinated they are. But just coming back to the IHRs, one thing that does concern me as well is I wrote to Crown Law and said, I want to see all the legal advice that you're given government about whether it affects our sovereignty or not and how does it affect our treaty obligations. So all the Māori and people that are concerned about treaty at the moment, you might be quite interested to say they withheld the information from me. They said client privilege. And free and, free and frank advice. And then they said they hadn't even considered the treaty obligations. But here's the thing, though. We know from the regulations that they're talking about gene therapy, right? Mm, but states it in. Well, that has huge implications for the concept of whakapapa, doesn't it? Wouldn't the Maori like to ask what actually gene therapy, what it's going to be defined as? And yeah. why hasn't the Crown considered the treaty obligations in relation to this once-in-a-generation global health security reform? Their words, not mine. Well, it's a bit of a concern. It is. We need people to submit on your Twitter and on your Facebook. You've got some links for um, some templates. Voices for Freedom have similar templates. We need people between now and midnight Sunday. Was that correct? Midnight Sunday? That's correct, yes. To take some time out, fill out those submissions, get them in there, because if we don't, if we don't speak up, uh, then we could end up in a worse position than we've already experienced under the COVID tyranny of Ardern. Mm, exactly. And I think just talking to your neighbours. <laughs> well, we weren't allowed to do that. Remember? I know, I was just, that's why I was laughing because I did that post the other day. <laughs> but just talking, but just not making it as detailed as you may know, just making it very simple for people that are newbies, like just keeping it 101 and saying, look, do you think it's right for the government to ask submissions but they won't give us the document on the basis to submit? And I think the average Kiwi is going to say, no, that's crazy. And then you can go, well, that's actually what's happening with these international health regulations. Or do yeah. you know how much it's going to cost to implement them? And we might be signing up to something and we don't even know how much it's going to cost after the government spent all this money on COVID. Do you think that's right? Just keeping it real simple. Just mm. get people interested and engaged. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I'm, the, I'm suspicious of governments at the best of times. I, I, I've spent a lifetime being in and around politicians. Uh, and so, so and my mother taught me to have a healthy distrust of them. Yeah. Um, I can see a scenario here where they get all these submissions and then they turn around and say, well, people have submitted on the wrong document. And so we'll just ignore all of those. Yeah. I, I can honestly see some bureaucrat uh, having that brilliant idea. I mean, there's, there's been documentaries written about but how it's these. It's not so brilliant when they've actually given it to me in writing. That's what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah. So yeah, I will send that to Winston tonight. I mean, there's a famous documentary, Yes Minister, you know, which which showed, showed everybody how these guys work. You know, yeah, they're like conjurers. They're like you know uh, people who run shell games. You know, they they mm. get you watching the pee, and and then all of a sudden the pee's gone, and you find out it was never there anyway. Exactly. You know, they're, they're just moving these shells around and uh, tricking you into thinking you're engaging with them and actually yeah. you're not. But but we have to engage because that's the process. Mm. So I'm thinking if anyone's got any brilliant marketing, I'm just a mere lawyer. I'm not a marketer. I don't have that creative side. Just get in touch with me mm. because I'm going to need 
we've got time, even if it does get passed in May, we've still got time. We don't need to panic completely, but we need to raise public awareness very quickly. Yep. So some person might better help me do a website. Some person might have some great slogan. Someone might want to make T-shirts. I don't care. Like I'm not doing this for money at all. I don't want anything out of it. I just want to raise public awareness. Right. Well, yeah, there's plenty of listeners to this show that will be appreciative of your efforts. Thank you. And, and um, you know, I'm sure we can uh, – there will be people out there that will offer their time um, and skills. Um, you know, there's plenty of people that I know who listen to the show that have got the ability to build websites and do that sort of thing. You know, graphic artists come up with snappy mm -hmm. designs, you know, little – even like little handouts uh, that, you know, with – bullet points that people can use to talk to their neighbours or talk to people. That would be amazing. Like I can help with the wording and then they can turn it into <laughs> layman's wording. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, that's the important thing. Like this can get really bogged down in technical details, legalese, yeah. um, you know, health jargon, all of that sort of thing. We actually need to keep it real and keep it simple so people can understand. Exactly. And, you know, the bottom line is, is that this appears to be a power grab by the WHO and vested interests who's, who fund the WHO uh, to wrest control away from ordinary citizens and their governments. Exactly. And what I always say is if we don't transfer our decision-making across there, we can still follow their recommendations, but we get to choose whether we follow them or not mm. or whether we want a different approach. We're an island. Like we're not dangerous to anyone we can stop close our borders in a real pandemic if we needed to very easily yeah no one can land their planes and no one can land their boats yeah We've so got no policies and no um james cameron um, see this is the thing that that i sit here thinking do we need to do something about this you know because i look at the united states for example and people will think oh the united states will agree to this well they actually can't agree to it. They might agree to it at a federal level, mm. but they can't actually force the individual states. And this is what people don't understand about the United States. Each one of those states, whether it's California or Idaho or Texas or New Mexico, are actually individual countries by law mm. who have created a federal level above their country to say, well, we've, we've, we're going to work together uh, as a team, and we're going to have a federal government over the top of that, but you can't tell us what to do. We'll pass our own laws. Thank you very much. Which is why you saw Florida having no lockdowns, why you saw Texas having no lockdowns, um, and ironically having the lowest incidences of, of COVID at the same time. <laughs> yeah. um, that's yeah. why you see these different states getting different results. You've got the complete mess in California, where they went completely over the top, draconian rules and regulations didn't didn't help them at all, opposed to states that are more freedom loving. Mm -hmm. um, and so I have this hope, and you know, hopium is a really bad thing to be addicted to, but I have this hope that it'll be the United States that says to the who, you know, we're not having a bar of that. And if we We're get an election, you know, yeah. yeah, we get it. We've got an election this year in the United States. We could we could see a change of president. Um, I can't see Donald Trump signing up to the WHO. I, I can see oh, him. Given that he tried to get out of the WHO. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I have this hope, and it, and it might be a forlorn hope, but it's hope nonetheless that it'll be the United States that um, puts the handbrake on a lot of this stuff. Yeah. 
We've got a couple of M- um, MPs in Britain, some in Ireland, some in Australia speaking out. Come on, New Zealand. We've had a change of government. We had a change of government. We don't want this draconian control. We, we rejected that comprehensively at the election. Yeah. So, um, so we should be rejecting this as well. Exactly. So, yeah, just get the word out. If you've got any skills that can help me, get in contact. But please don't contact me just because you've got a video to send me. <laughs> yeah. You've probably yeah. already seen it. Yeah, and I've probably already received it about 20 or 30 times. Yeah. <laughs> That's all that, what you expect. Like, I understand that it is great people to do that. But, yeah, just yeah. I am working for free on this and also have a life and have a business to run as well. So I do need to use my time wisely. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on the crunch again, Kirsten. We'll have to touch base again on the progress on this because it's an issue that interests me from a freedom perspective. Cool. I'll I'll let you know when we've got a big announcement to make soon. All right. Well, you're welcome on my show anytime. Great. Thanks, Cam. Thanks. Bye. Kirsten is working very hard on this and her work is complementary to the work Voices for Freedom are doing on this issue as well. Many hands make light work, and we can all do our part. Tell me your thoughts on what Kirsten had to say by emailing inbox at realitycheck.radio or text to 2057. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now. This is The Crunch with Cam Slater. Conversations with a side of controversy, right here on RCR. Morris Williamson is a repeat guest on The Crunch, and we've had him on before, of course, and he's agreed to give us regular updates on the goings-on at Auckland Council. He was the transport minister for many years, so I'll hit him up about what's going on in Auckland Transport. He joins me on the line now. Welcome back to The Crunch, Morris Williamson. Good to have you. Nice to be with you. I hope you've had a restful holiday period enjoying the sun. Thank God we got a good summer this time. Yeah, this time last year was uh, pelting down with rain in the most appalling uh, manner. And, of course, uh, the... Left-wing media, people like Russell Brown and Simon Wilson were accusing the mayor of being absent. I'm not sure that the mayor, I mean, he he would like to think he's got godlike qualities, but I don't think he can stop rain. No, um, there are a few people who have tried along the way and failed. I, I do worry about the entire issue of climate change because there are people who say, and Marima Davidson has said it, if the Greens policy was enacted, we would be able to solve climate change. And what that doesn't take account of is we are 0.17 of a percent of the entire greenhouse gas emissions. And so even if New Zealand disappeared into the ocean tomorrow and was gone altogether, it will have no impact, no impact whatsoever on climate change. The big driver of climate change will be both Asia and Latin America. And the huge volumes of what they're contributing to the atmosphere in an, in a week, so extra in an extra com- contribution outweighs everything we've done entirely. So, 
Yes, we do need to do some things to to sort of mitigate climate change. We should have a little bit better building codes in some of the flood-prone areas where we build on some stilts and allow better drainage. I was lucky enough to spend some time in New Orleans after Katrina, and it was interesting to see all along the Mississippi that the houses were on like two-metre-type poles, and you had a concrete base plate underneath that where you could maybe store something or even park your car if it wasn't mm. raining, but you couldn't leave anything in terms of living there. And then when the Mississippi did flood, it never got past the one and a half metre of the poles, so your house was surrounded by water, but it did no damage whatsoever. So I think the way we build needs to change so that we, if we do build in flood-prone areas, uh, we do it sensibly. I think uh, better drainage systems where we can get rid of the excess water, et cetera. But the idea we're going to stop uh, these things happening, uh, and in fact, I'm one of the strongest believers in climate change the world's ever seen. I believe the world's climate has always changed and will continue to always change, and we just need to adapt to live within the parameters for which Mother Nature throws at us. I would have thought um, having a chat with a few Dutch people might, it might um, solve a few problems as well. Yeah, they've had to. You see, the, the necessity is the mother of invention, and there are people all around the world who have had to change what they've done in order to cope with I mean, I don't know what percentage of the Netherlands is actually below sea level, but I know a big percentage is, and yet they've managed to cope accordingly and, and, and work. So, you know, you've got two options. You can either solve the climate change issue and stop it happening. Uh, well, good luck with that. Or you can say, well, if we are going to get those big floods from time to time, and we always have done, this mm. side floods are only a recent occurrence. There have been really big floods and really hot temperatures South of England was estimated to be in the high 40s around the Battle of Hastings time, 1066. That's a thousand years ago. Uh, they were growing grapes and great uh, vineyards and that in the north of Scotland uh, when Scotland was that warm. So, yeah, look, get ready, get real. The, there will be climate change. There will be heavy sort of events like rainfalls and storms and so on. And uh, we just have to build and mitigate accordingly and cope with it. And it's not that hard if you plan for it. Yeah, it's always it's always interested me that everyone sort of ignores one of the biggest uh, migration influxes uh, that occurred as a result of what would be called climate change these days, and that was the arrival of Angles and Jutes and Saxons from Europe into uh, into Great Britain. Yeah, and they were driven out by floods and, yeah. uh, and rising rivers and and low lying uh, areas in Jutland and places like that. That's where they got their names from. So they all migrated. And that was well before 1066 when the Normans rocked yeah. up and gave them a lesson in uh, warfare. Yeah. Well, one of the things, if you go to Hastings, there's a plaque there. I was reading it, and it said one of the things that brought down uh, William the Conqueror's soldiers more rapidly than. Uh, malnourishment and dysentery, which always used to be the biggest killer of soldiers, uh, or bows and arrows and swords, which was second, th th they were falling in the battlefield from heat exhaustion because wearing a suit of armour in a 48-degree mm. temperature, you literally can only swing a bloody broadsword for a few minutes before you fall. Yeah, you, you put on a wool uh, a wool padded <laughs> gambas on and put, put um, 
five or six kilos of steel chainmail over the top of that and an iron yeah. helmet, yeah. you're going to get a bit hot, aren't you? Go into a sauna and try running around for a while. Anyway, so so that's one of the things that Auckland's got to face. We've got to start uh, not not the extreme of let's ban building in any flood prone areas because in that case it's just about we're all flood prone at some point somewhere. Mm. What we want to do is say what what are the likelihoods of flooding in specific zones. And what do we need to change the building code so that buildings can still be built there and used there and for the vast bulk of time uh, successfully used there. But when the one and, you know, whatever, 100 years or whatever occurs, we cope. It copes, it functions, it drains. They don't get the water into the living part of the property and so on. Can be done. It's done elsewhere, as you pointed out, Holland. And I was impressed as hell along that Mississippi riverbank of what they'd done after Katrina. A good mate of mine who was born in Fiji like me, his father was the Suva City Council uh, chief engineer, and he was responsible for putting in these uh, massive stormwater drains around Suva. And, and you can still see them today. They're, they're, they're almost like the ones in Singapore. Right. And I, I wonder if, um, if our civil engineers in Auckland City aren't up with the play that we, that Auckland's actually a subtropical city and perhaps we should have monsoon-style drainage systems. I, I think there's no doubt. And remember, stormwater is not a, a, a water care issue. They're there for clean water and sewerage and, mm. and other Stormwater is more a roading issue when you're building your roading network, putting proper culverts and proper, you know, relief ability. In LA, they've got a thing called the Los Angeles River, mm. uh, which I was amazed because if you go down to it, it's not Mostly even what, dry. It's well, it's actually concrete. It's yeah. actually not bloody. It's wide as you can't. It's wide as one of the freeways, and it's just solid concrete in a big U shape. And it's there to get all the water out of LA whenever they get. And they hardly ever get rain. I was there for several years, and I think it rained about four times. But but when it does rain, it pours. In fact, there's a really good Albert Hammond song. Seems it never rains in California, but when it does, it pours. And when you get these torrential rains, they've got the infrastructure to cope with getting it out of the place. Yeah, a lot of the Auckland's infrastructure, particularly on the isthmus, is clapped out and, you know, over 100 years old in many places and not designed for all the additional infill housing and the additional roads and everything else that's putting all that stormwater through the system. Yes, it's one of the things councils needing to be aware of all the time. You can't just keep adding uh, a burden to the load and not have some relief mechanism to be able to take it away. And so we have built a lot of houses and we've got a lot of people living in a city, uh, even though we're spread out across a big piece of land. But we haven't kept the infrastructure up to date. And, and this goes back, you know, decades, more than decades. It's not just the latest council or the one before it. Oh, it's, it's, it's an intergenerational. The, you know, the council has been, uh, we could even put it back to, you know, the mid-1980s when Michael Bassett's reforms gave general competence to, to the councils. It's at that point that uh, councils started to account for things like depreciation. Depreciation's there for a reason. It's there to fund further capital upgrades but unfortunately um, various politicians from from both sides of the of the spectrum have raided the de depreciation to spend it on frivolities absolutely um just going back to bassett's reforms because i was in parliament at the time in 1989 what was hilarious was we were taking i think and i won't get this exactly right but i think there were 34 
local bodies in Auckland. So you had a Mount Albert Borough Council and the Mount Eden Borough Council and Only Hunger Borough Council and a Newmarket Borough Council and like as far Howick Borough Council and so on. And some of the quotes I kept them. The mayor of Newmarket at the time said, if we are forced to join with Auckland City Council, as they were, then this will be the end of Newmarket. It's over. Still there. Well, you look at what's flourishing and booming right now and look at what's dead as a dodo. Downtown Auckland is shocking, just shocking. And Newmarket is literally trying to get a car park, trying to get around. It is exploding. So I think he got it wrong. Just my, just, just my, my might be, yeah. Mm. And, I mean, and people say did. to me, "Can you come into the into the city for a meeting?" It's uh, look, yeah. I've got an appointment to catch cancer. Actually, <laughs> I'd rather do that. The other thing that I found at the time, and I made the comment to Bassett at one point about how uh, I'm surprised that even the roads joined up, and one of his officials pointed out to me, if you took down Dominion Road and down Sandringham Road. A number of the cross streets, like say Burnley Terrace, yeah, which, which run between Mount Albert and Mount Eden Borough Council. If you're driving along the straight Burnley Terrace, halfway along, there's a little dog leg, only about five or six meters wide, just does a little S and carries on. And you think, well, what was that for? This is a straight road, and that's because that was where the boundary between Mount Eden and Mount Albert was, and they didn't get the roads to line up. So. Uh, I mean that that's the problem with the history of stuff, and he he was good to get it down to to seven. I I still think we've got a long way to go to make the super city work. We 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 thought there would be some real gains. We thought there'd be some real efficiency gains. We thought we would be getting you know one human resource department, not seven. One accounting department, not seven. I don't believe that any of what I argued for as one of the ministers in the government of the time that when Rodney Hyde was putting that legislation through, I don't believe we've seen the real benefits of what could happen. And I think that's through poor administration and poor governance. Well, we, we were promised um, with the super city that there was going to be less staff and and uh, economies of scale and every other yeah. wonderful you know, motherhood and apple pie statement that was was given to convince us all that it was a good idea. Well, let me give you those numbers. Around the time of the merger, there was around 10,000 full-time equivalent staffs across the seven that all got merged into one. So 10,000, and we were, we were I actually used it in speeches because we were getting the briefing notes from internal affairs. We, we could see that the, the efficiency gains deliver about a 25% reduction. So that would be down to 7,500, you know, quite a big saving of staff mm. by, you know, that, that sort of rationalising of all the service delivery. Uh, the current staff at Auckland Council is about 12,500. So that's a 25% increase. And yet we had promised a 25% decrease. So the gains haven't come. Uh, in real terms, the expenditure is exploding. We've got 13 billion of debt on the books. I, I always say to an audience, 13,000 million. So if you had a big pile of a million dollars and just kept walking down the road, 13,000 piles of those million dollar piles. So we, we have got to stop spending money. We have, it's the only reason I actually stood for council. I wasn't that fussed about being a councillor, and I certainly don't think it's a, a job I want to do for long. 
but I want to try and break the back of that spending monster that just keeps consuming money and spending it. And yet, if you ask your ordinary ratepayer out there, are you getting more service delivery for what you pay for your rates? I've not met someone. I've done it with audiences. Hands up those who think they're getting a better service, more detail, more product, more whatever. Not, not a hand, nowhere. And I said, but are you paying more rates? Every hand goes up. So the reality of it is that it, that efficiency gains never happened. The staff reduction and rationalization never happened. And uh, it's time we try to go back and revisit that whole super city concept. I'm still a fan of it. But I would really like to know there were some really strict criteria about how money was spent and what debt could be accumulated. Yeah, it, it seems to be a problem with politicians generally, and you being a, a former or current politician. We've been promised these massive projects basically filled with hopium, you know, highly addictive. We're going to get these amazing outcomes. Uh, the Super Cities one, Max Bradford's electricity reforms would be another. Yep. We had the, the three waters boondoggle that the Labour Party foisted on all of the councils when they originally said it was going to be a choice and then they forced them and coerced them. Just the other day, uh, Christopher Luxon and Simeon Brown announced that three waters is getting axed and they've got some other name for it. It's, you know, I, I don't know who was um, hired to do their slogans. I think it was somebody in the local kindergarten to do it. But, it, you know, water reform done right or something gay like that, you know, it doesn't make sense. What's your thoughts on on what was released by Christopher Luxon and Simeon Brown? I'm actually quite keen. I don't think this I don't think the slogan's great. I agree with that. <laughs> but I think it's quite a good idea because the first question that I always have is name me a country anywhere where they have fixed their water issue by involving race, mm. putting half of a particular race onto governing bodies and boards show me where that's made a difference. And of course, that whole co-governance was what brought down the Three Waters because most people lost focus with what Three Waters was supposed to be about and got really angry about why is a certain group of our citizens getting the right to control and govern a particular vital asset to the way we live and work and operate. Uh, and so Three Waters got brought down by that whole co-governance more than anything else. But I, I do quite like the idea of putting a blowtorch back onto councils in terms of how they actually, and, and you hit it, the, the nail on the head before with regards to depreciation. It's the cheapest way to get through good budgets is just don't fund your depreciation. But the day of reckoning comes, and we have just never funded depreciation on so much of the asset base and asset class that councils across the country have got. So the day of reckoning has to come, and the government mustn't be the banker of last resort, or we'll bail you out. But local government in particular has got to find more intelligent ways. I don't believe that some of the councils we've got should ever exist as small as they are. Uh, and I think a little bit of, uh, you know, emerging of some of those rural and small councils. And you can do that by getting a, a council controlled organisation together and letting them run the water operation. And so I think the government's put the ball back in their court, which is the way to go, and then said, come back with structures and funding and proposals, and only then will we necessarily have to either get into loan guarantee systems or even taxpayers' money. 
See, Auckland's kind of lucky in that regard. It's already got water care. So it, it seems to be a logical, that's already a council-controlled organisation that could fit into that framework. Other councils obviously don't have that and would need to come up with something similar to that. Well, the other thing that Auckland's got, which I think uh, we should be pleased with, is we've got metering. And when I see big cities around this country that don't have any idea of how much water you use. Or even little ones like Wellington. Little ones like Wellington. But I mean, we we here where I live, we use a lot of water because we've got a swimming pool and it requires a lot of topping up when the sun's beating down and the water's warm and evaporation. We should pay more than someone, uh, the, the lady next door who's a pensioner and doesn't use very much water at all. But the idea of that you can have a city like Wellington and not know what usage is going on. Imagine everything. Imagine your electricity. Imagine if you paid an electricity bill as an average for the suburb rather than what you use. Yeah, the guy with the Tesla down the road is getting subsidised by everybody else. So so I think that uh, the new government has also made it clear. They've said they won't make it mandatory, but I think they've made it pretty clear that one of the solution parts to this getting tidied is to actually know what usage is going on and to actually start making people pay. There's a really other good element to that. It actually makes the council carry a lot of the cost itself for the leakage and the wastage Mm. because you put charging on those who are using it through their meters, but 43% of Wellington's water is lost through leakage. Boy, if you knew that you were having to pick up the tab for 43% of that and not the people that you're trying to charge, you'd soon get people out there with a bit of duct tape getting those pipes tied up. Well, that's the thing. You know, There's the old business adage, what gets measured gets done. Correct. And uh, Wellington, I can remember living in Wellington, um, visiting you in Parliament at the time, um, yep. you know, in my younger days, and yep. uh, I can remember there was a massive outcry when Wellington Council um, suggested that we're going to have water meters, and there were yes. people marching in the street and protesting. Well, they're reaping that uh, benefit right now with the water actually pouring down the gutters on a daily basis. There's another good uh, business adage which says if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. Mm. And if you don't know what it is, you know, if you just don't know what is Mrs. Jones next door using compared to the Williamsons with their swimming pool and teenagers who take 12-hour showers, you go, you know, you should pay for your usage. And it's the same when you're driving on the roads. You pay for your usage through your fuel tax or road user charges. And it's the same for a whole range of uh, things you consume. If you want to fly on an aeroplane to go to, uh, I don't know, to go to Hamilton, it's a lot less than if you're going to London because of the volume of fuel that you're using and so Mm. on. So I don't understand how we can not, I mean, I probably live with very small little communities where you can just average it out and say, oh, you will all. But a city like Wellington, for God's sake, how they've not had metering for so long and the wastage. So we'll, we'll see. But I actually think water care has been well run. I had a lot of respect for some of the directors and managers. Mark Ford did a damn good job of running water care when it was first set up. Uh, and uh, it's a shame that we don't have Mark around because I thought he did a, a hell of a good job. Mm. Talking about road user charges, there's a little bit of a diversion here. I see the uh, people with electric vehicles who have been basically bludging off the rest of road users for quite some time are not looking quite so smug now because the government said, right, we're going to actually start charging for road user charges. And we've got articles and stuff and various other woke womble type um, publications where they're comparing a Tesla with um, you know, a Toyota Corolla and saying, well, Toyota Corolla's 
only got this much road user charges and it's in their petrol, whereas a, a Tesla is going to have the same as a, as a two and a half ton ute. And they're sitting there going, this isn't fair. And it, it seems to have escaped them that a Tesla weighs as much as a ute. Yes. Like well, they're look, enormously look, heavy vehicles, electric vehicles. I think it's a very outdated mode to try and charge for the usage of a piece of tarmac based on fuel being put into a tank of a vehicle. Mm. What you should be paying for is distance travelled and weight. Yeah. And if you've got a heavy vehicle, the, the cost is more than a really feather light vehicle. And if you're doing thousands of kilometres, you should be paying thousands of kilometres use. And if you're only doing 20 or 30 a, a month, like the little lady next door who wants to go down to the supermarket once a week. So I think the idea of an excise tax at the pump, and remember, I was transport minister for a bloody long time. I could see a day coming. I always said this in speeches, when you'll have, hydrogen fuel cells. You'll possibly even have uh, panels on the sort of roof of cars where solar will be efficient enough to keep the batteries running. And you will have just a, a myriad of different fuel cell to, to run the vehicle. You cannot charge any other way than for a, like a road user charge. Yeah. Your weight and the distance that you travel. I've got a diesel car. I have to pay road user charges. Every time I upgrade my char I've got to pay for so many 10,000 more kilometres. Yeah. My weight of my car is known, and my bill comes back, you know, $800 or whatever it is for 10,000K. Uh, that's what all vehicles. So it should not matter whether you're a hybrid or whether you're electricity or a hydrogen fuel cell mm. or whether you've even got some bloody big rubber bands and you wind them up and let your car race down the road. It should be based on distance travelled and weight of vehicle. And the same goes for cycleways. That should be charged as well. Yeah, well. I'm oh, dude, there's, not enough, there's not enough cyclists using them to pay for it. I was going to say, the poor guy that goes down it every day, he'll be paying half a million dollars because uh, I, you, you've got me onto a subject which we probably best not to go to. I, I'm just so cross at the way we have taken away lanes of road in order to cope for cycleways. And the best example would be around Lagoon Drive on the Waipuna Lake. Mm. I argued back with AT when they were proposing to take away one lane either way. It is already absolutely locked, blocked, and stopped around there in the morning and at night. If you do that, you will literally create traffic chaos. And they, I said, so if you want to build a busway, go out onto the lake put a concrete bridge out there and, and put extra lanes, but don't take away. Well, they didn't listen. Uh, they told me I was wrong. It wouldn't have any impact. And if any of your listeners are struggling to try and come down the ellerslie Pamua Highway and get around Lagoon Drive onto the Pakarang Highway uh, at time of the end of workday or early in the morning the other way, it is just hell. It is just locked, blocked, stopped cars, backed up. I was coming down the Ellerslie Pamu Highway the other day, got to the intersection with Lunn Avenue. There's a gas station there, and at Lunn Avenue comes in from your left. I looked at my GPS, and it said 47 minutes to my home here in Pakaranga. Mm, ridiculous. But, and, but, bring... but, but you go past the beautiful, big, wide-ass, gold-plated cycleway, and Councillor Sharon Stewart and I often travel in the same car, and whoever's the passenger, we make notes about how many cyclists we have ever seen 
on that cycleway and on many days, even though it's taking us a long time to crawl along that road, we don't see one cyclist. Yeah, and yet, it's, it's just ridiculous. Well, it's the priorities that were set by the, the previous Labour government, and I, I, I do have some sympathy with AT, and that is if they're going to get their funding for things from the government, they've got to comply with what the government's direction are. That's why I'm really hopeful that when the new Minister of Transport, Simeon Brown, puts out the government policy statement in a few weeks' time, that a whole lot of that ridiculous requirement for speed bumps and for pedestrian crossings costing 500000 and so on, that that'll all just come out. I want to just take you back a bit. When I first got to be Minister of Transport, it became quite clear from my briefing notes that you could actually invoke a safety regime to whatever extent you wished. And and the most extreme would be, uh, and I actually said it in a speech once, I think, to the AA, I could actually reduce our road toll to zero like that. I would make the speed limit 10 kilometres an hour. I would make it only self-laying track vehicles so you wouldn't have wheels and tyres. And there would not be a single human being killed on our roads. The economy would be bankrupt by the end of that week and the World Bank would have to bail us out. But I would be able to go to world forums and say, see, I promised you New Zealand is first in the world to not have anyone die on our roads. That's how ridiculous and extreme could be. So what you have to do with road safety is have safety at reasonable cost. That was the mantra that I drove into people. And Mayor Wayne Brown, I appointed him to be the chairman of the Land Transport Safety Authority while I was minister. And he said, I remember being berated by you for about half an hour in your office the day I started. I want to make sure that it's safety at reasonable cost. People will die on our roads. I think it's tragic and every death is tragic. But if you try to get it to the point where we have zero, like the previous government with their big red zeros, you will literally just spend fortunes of money for no real gain because the road toll didn't actually come down with all they were doing. And the inconvenience to road users, the delay in traffic movement, and the cost of, I mean, when Jenny and Holmes or whatever it was came out with a, we can build a, a three-bedroom home with a walk-in pantry kitchen and a, and a two-car garage for less than Aucklanders building a speed bump, you think something's wrong here. So hopefully AT have learnt, although I see the latest announcement, they're going to head with more and more of these stupid things. When the government policy statement comes out, they'll not be able to hide behind that excuse anymore. Well, we have to do it because the central government mm. is giving us that directive. And the ads on the road to zero made me just so angry. Yes, we want the road toll to come down. And one of the things, one it's of It's never going to get to zero. It was such a stupid statement. Yeah, it's we just never going to get to zero. I mean, I'm just looking at a chart for uh, the road toll fatalities uh, in New Zealand. Yes. And there's this big fuss made about 300 and something, you know, high 300s of the road toll every year at the moment. But people are unaware that in about 1972, we had our highest ever road toll. About 870, something like that. And then between between 1972 and about 1987, 
it yep. sort of went down a little bit to about 570, but back up to 800 again yep. uh, in, in 87. But every year since then, it has been a downward slope yep. because we've had increases in technology. We've had airbags. We've got side intrusion beams. We've got the compulsory um, yep. uh, seat belts. All of these measures have had no impact. Uh, had, you know, there's no roading impact on that at all, and yet we've got AT that's got this directive to try and get to zero by some stupid date, that's actually impossible with a growing population. Well, but the councils around the country, I've, I've been in Hamilton a lot recently because my mum was in Waikato Hospital until she died and I've been living in Hamilton. And they've gone in what they call in-lane bus stops. So they've built these special things where the bus just stops and the traffic backs up and there are cars coming around the corner thinking it's a free road to come around the corner on and suddenly, whoa, straight. And you talk to local Hamiltonians and they just say, this is madness. This is absolute madness. And I think there's a by-election going on in Hamilton now for one of the council seats and the previous national MP there, Tim McIndoe, standing. He said he's standing on a let's get rid of the in-lane buses and let's get rid of the speed bumps and all the pedestrian crossings with raised. And he said the, the support that people are expressing for Thank God there's some common sense. Now, I don't blame the, the council if the central government say, if you're going to get the funding you want, then this is what you have to do. But the road to zero meant, made no sense whatsoever. Every activity human beings are involved in, every activity, including flying airplanes and whatever, there, there are people who drown in the bath every year. If we want the bath to zero policy, we should be ripping out baths all across the country, there should be a bath police. They go suburb to suburb. Oh, we, we, we should just say allow baths, but only if they've got half a centimetre of water yeah, in Yeah, the bath can only be two inches deep and otherwise. And well, you can drown in less than two, two, you can drown in that. So, yep. you know, we've got to make it so you can't drown in it. So let's make the baths, you know, almost like a shower tray. So that, that that's how silly it gets. Look, as I said, every death's a tragedy and so on. But the fact is that transport is the greatest enabler of economic growth. It gets our food to all the distribution centres and we, we eat well and live well now compared to previous generations. It allows for us to participate in uh, entertainment and holidays and so on that we never used to be able to. It, it allows for all of what our new society wants. In return for that, there will be tragic, car crashes where people lose their lives. And if you want to say, well, we'll have it a zero, then all you're going to do is make it impossible for people to participate in a modern society. So I'm really pleased that the, the big red zeros that Michael Wood spent 10 grand each on those red zeros have been shoved in the cupboard down at the Ministry of Transport and locked away, and that it will be safety at reasonable cost. And could you... Um, could you See, and uh, 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 um, I'm thinking those zeros could be used by Wayne Brown, for example, to uh, and you know show us what he's achieved in the last year. Yes, well, that's that's one of the things that I think is important to focus on. I, I learned many years ago, and harsh lessons in politics, that the public don't vote for you because you're a nice person and they don't vote for you because you're friendly at their school uh, prize giving and give something to their kids. They vote for you because you are delivering outcomes for them that you promised you would do. And at the end of your time, they go, wow, 
And the problem we've got at Auckland Council is we we promised a lot of things and yet runs on the board after half a term, because it's coming up to 18 months of the three-year term, runs of the board are pretty hard to spot. I mean, we were going to get rid of the orange road cones, and yet as far as I can see, the little buggers are actually breeding because they're just more and more of them every they're term. They're self-replicating, I think. They're like bacteria, aren't they? They're just... Yeah. I mean, yeah. I went to Milford the other day and I turned the corner uh, onto Hurstmere Road heading towards Milford and I could not see the road for the amount of orange that was yeah. placed on it. I know. You know, it was incredible. There was, I think there was like 5,000 uh, road cones there and more were appearing as I drove past. I just wished I'd spotted it because if you'd started a, a road cone manufacturing business uh, about five, six years ago before the government put all of its rules that you've, even if you are fixing a water leak somewhere down a road, what used to be the guy went down there with his spanner, lifted up the manhole, grabbed the pipe, pulled it together, tightened up the bolts, and that was it. Now you have to put a traffic safety management regime in place up every side road, up all roads leading to it. You have to have traffic calmed down to either stopped or through 30K. And that that is just insanity compared to where we were. Now, the argument was every now and then somebody got hurt at a building site because there wasn't proper tra traffic safety management. But if you look at that Williamson Avenue uh, pedestrian crossing, that costs sort of, you know, four ninety, five hundred thousand. A hundred and seventy thousand of the cost of doing that pedestrian crossing. A hundred and seventy thousand was traffic safety management. That is getting all the orange cones, putting them all out, paying for whatever I, I guess they lease them by the day or whatever, and and paying for all of that while you're putting down a pedestrian crossing. In the old days, you might have put one sign up either way, uh, beware pedestrian crossing being painted or and cars slowed down and uh, took accordingly. And we've just got silly about it. Safety at reasonable cost can be the only way forward. There, there'll always be a death associated with it. In fact, I, I did a speech at high school and I won the speech contest with it. We had to give. I didn't know you went to high school, Morris. I didn't go for long. <laughs> you <laughs> went to my, eat your lunch, didn't you? I went, went to eat my lunch, but I, uh, yeah, they couldn't put me in the fourth form because my father was still in there. But uh, but the uh, the old joke that was we had to give speech on New Zealand's most dangerous sport, and all these other kids talked about rugby with the net breaking and so on, or motor racing and people being killed in it, or skydiving and all these sports. And I gave a speech which won the speech contest, hilarious speech about uh, the most dangerous sport in New Zealand was lawn bowls. Without, <laughs> and that's because more people died every weekend playing lawn bowls than yep. any other sport in New Zealand by a long way. Now you know why they died, of course, <laughs> but they died. And the facts and the, the facts I could present you with all the tabular. I imagine croquet's up there too. Croquet would be second or third down. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I think the word croquet is not a good word. But, <laughs> yeah, cro but, but, but lawn bowls was definitely the most dangerous sport. And if you looked at those numbers without knowing what it was and looked at how many people are dying, you'd be saying, right, we've got to ban this. Yeah, imagine indoor bowls is probably just as bad, just as dangerous. Out, go out, close all the lawn bowl companies down, shut them all down because look at how many people are dying every week. Road to zero. We don't want any lawn bowls deaths. And that's your problem with the road to zero. It's a lovely idea. I wish no one died. 
Well, the only way you can have that is we have no activity on the roading network at all, uh, in which case you will actually have no one die, but would be bankrupt by by Friday. I see on Tuesday morning uh, there's an article in the Herald talking about AT and how in Point Chev they're building yes. some phenomenal number of these raised platforms. Uh, I'm just going to try and find it uh, now. It's, I think it's 26. Yeah, I, I saw think. the email come in before. It's a, it's a large number. I, I don't remember. But all yeah. I can say is that th- this just got to stop. This this is just ridiculous. And what I loved about AT is the number of projects where they've gone in. We had one here at uh, near our, our primary school where they went in and built this massive big roundabout and put all sorts. You couldn't actually come through uh, the, the streets affected. They were so badly blocked, locked with lumps and bumps. And then they tore it all out again. And there's been many examples of they've put it in and then they've, pulled it all out again. And that's one of my angers about money spend. If you're spending somebody else's money, you don't really care. And I want to start caring about, we are a custodian of the ratepayers' money. The poor buggers have had rate increase on rate increase to a point that it's just obscene. But I don't think they've seen the great service delivery. And our parks are not getting mowed any more than they used to. In fact, less. The berms don't get mowed. We're taking away rubbish bins from the parks and so on now, so you can just leave all your rubbish and pollute the waterways and so on. I think there's a strong view out there. Sadly, I have to say, and I've been a councillor now for eight, coming up to the 18-month period and it's halfway through, I don't believe we've yet made the big, hard decisions about staff rationalisation, about cost reductions and about service delivery uh, that you can benchmark against some of the most effective and efficient delivery mechanisms out there. I still think we're a bit of a lumbering organisation. So runs on the board, pretty scarce at this point. Happy to admit that. You mentioned earlier in the in our conversation about the government being a lender of last resort. And I know Wayne Brown uh, last week was screaming uh, quite loudly that the government had taken away the Auckland excise tax, the extra tax that Auckland has paid on their fuel uh, because the Labor government decided that we should pay more tax on our fuel to fund a rail line to the airport that has not had a single millimetre built. And we've paid pretty much six years of this um, massive tax. And Wayne Brown's now crying about it because the money's been taken away and there's all these projects that AT was going to have funded by those taxes. And it seems, it, it, and he even made a, a bizarre statement saying to the government ministers, this is my city, not yours. Yet he's got his hand out for other people's money. And, yeah, and that, it, that, it, it kind of doesn't make sense to me that you, you're saying it's my city, but you, everyone else in New Zealand, you all have to pay for what's in my city. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a dilemma that will always exist while we've got uh, local roads and government roads. All the state highway networks, so in Auckland here, SH1, SH16, SH18, SH20, they're all owned, operated and built by central government. Mm. And they sit in amongst the network of all of the local roads. Now, I did propose, I put a document out in 1998, 
called Better Transport, Better Roads, in which we actually emerged and formed some roading companies that would own the entire roading network on a business-like basis, would have a proper balance sheet, would fund depreciation, and would actually manage those roads. It it didn't succeed because it got so much opposition from every one of the councils in New Zealand that would see they had no reason for being anymore. So that didn't happen. But but there is that issue that Mayor Brown says quite regularly on the radio, I want to put a congestion charge on the the main southern motorway at Green Lane and at Penrose and, and so on. I want to do it on SH16 coming in from the Waitakere's and I want to do it on the north northern motorway. Um, you know, up to sort of Greenhithe or wherever. You go, well, I've just got to be a bit careful of that, Mr. Mayor. I've said to him, we don't actually build, own, operate those roads. They are government's roads. The government owns them. It pays for them through your taxes. Uh, And um, you can't, under the current legislation, you can't have a third party charging you for access to something you don't own. It would be like you paying rent to somebody for a property they didn't own. You know, we're going to charge you rent for that house down the road. You say, well, you don't actually own that house. So I, I, I'm look. I'm delighted the government got rid of the regional fuel tax. I know that's not a widely held view among some of my council colleagues. And what I'm more delighted about anything is to see a government promise to do something in the campaign. If you vote for us, we will do this. And Auckland's vote is really worth doing some analysis on. I've got the breakdown of the party vote for what is called Auckland, and that is the 23 electorates, 22 general and one Maori, that is Auckland Council. And then I've got the breakdown of the what's not Auckland. And listen to this. National got a 38% party vote across the country. It got 45% party vote in Auckland and 35% non-Auckland. So a huge percentage difference. That's 10 percentage points is massive. It is massive. So the people of Auckland voted. We like this policy. We like what you're saying. We are voting for you. And they even voted Michael Wood out of his electorate in Roscoe. And And and, to zero. And other Labor members got voted out. So imagine what the media would have done to the new national government and Simeon Brown in particular if he said, ah, no, we're not going to do that. You can keep your regional fuel tax. They would have torn them to shreds for being liars and cheats. You promised you'd do it and so on. But when they did do it, and a refreshing change to see a government actually do what it said it would and promise the voters it would, how, how refreshing is that? It's a yeah. dangerous precedent. I hope it doesn't catch on. Yeah, but they said we would do it. They did it. The next thing they get bombarded, you know, you can't do this. Uh, well, yes, and in fact, the Auckland Council should have planned for this well in advance of the announcement last week because it was always coming. I mean, the polls showed there was going to be a change of government well through all of last year. I mean, that's why Jacinda Jacinda bailed in February, not because there was nothing left in the tank. It was there's nothing left in the polls. Yeah. And so we knew there would be a change of government, whether it would be a national government or a national act government or a national act in New Zealand, whatever it was going to be. It was going to be a change. So any council putting its budget together last year with political eyes on it, and I argued at the time, you're going to have to know that these guys, if they get elected, will stick to their promise. They promised to get rid of the regional fuel tax. Uh, TVNZ must have hated it, but they went out and did a vox pop of people at the petrol station the night it was all announced. 
They couldn't find one person that was opposed. They said, oh, this is great, love this. And I kept thinking, they must be trying to find someone for an hour. They, well, you, you must hate it. No, it's good. Okay, well, what about you? You don't like it. So they ended up with five or six or seven people, and everyone said, oh, I'm pleased. That's a great idea. Good news. So we have to cut our cloth accordingly. And what I think we as a council have to say is, right, it's clear we don't get that money anymore. We've got to cl- cut our spending cloth accordingly. And if and that means not- cancelling those projects at AT's, you know, well acknowledged a guilt edged. In fact, they're probably hammering the gold on to each of those things that they're doing on a daily basis. Um, They have to go. And let's stop building cycleways that are not used. This idea of if you build it, they will come. I'm sorry, there's good examples where it has already been built and they don't come. If you come down to that gold-plated cycleway around the Lagoon Drive and onto the Pakaranga Road that I was talking about earlier, I've sat down there with my camera sitting on a tripod for an hour and 38 minutes, I think it was, having my lunch and just listening to some news through headphones. And my camera's running constantly uh, and not one cycle come, a sunny day, lovely day, uh, not one cyclist came along during the entire time I'm sitting there. And yet I then spun my camera 90 degree around onto the Pakaranga Highway and there's just cars locked, blocked, stopped and backed up as far as your eye can see. And that's because the sort of the, the lunatics are running the asylum, the, the people who believe cycling is the way to solve it. We need cycling and walking, and we don't want these evil thing called cars. I'm sorry, the priority has to be for a place like my ward, where 92.8% of people in the last census say that they use the motor vehicle as their main form of transport. We've got to start putting the focus on to how do we get that flowing more rapidly? How do we remove the barriers, not how do we build? Mm. There was a proposal under the previous government to put a speed bump on the Pakaranga Highway. This is three lanes in either direction. That is a major artery to get people into and out of the city every morning and every night. And they were going to stick these big speed bumps on the Pakaranga Highway. Unfortunately, the local MP, who now, fortunately, is the Minister of Transport, said, you know, no way and held public meetings and, you know, the poor old AT people that attended them got sort of savaged by the public saying, what, what is it that you guys are smoking? Because this is nuts. And it, it got canned in the end. So I'm hopeful that with the new government policy statement to come out and a whole lot of the emphasis moved on to getting people moving around the city quicker, uh, getting better, faster, cheaper vehicle uh passageways, uh, getting rid of the nonsense of road to zero, getting rid of the nonsense of building speed bumps on things like Pakaranga Highway. Oh, cycleways where there's ne- they're never going to be used. I was in Manukau the other day in Cavendish Drive in the oh, right. uh, d- deep industrial part of it, you know, like south of Manukau City Centre. Yeah. There's this cycleway they've put in that's about three feet wide and it's got a concrete edge, you know, all these sort of raised things that are concrete like booms uh, to protect the cycleways that's filled with detritus and rubbish and everything yep. else because it can't be swept. There's yep. never been a single cyclist I've ever seen on, and I'm there every week um, going down that road. It it would have cost it would have cost easily two million dollars to do what they've done for no benefit. It's it's an, actually an inconvenience for everybody else. Correct. But but it's also a little bit like, I know what's best for you, you don't. Yeah. And so I've decided that instead of you using a motor vehicle to get to wherever you work. You'll use a bicycle. 
I will make you use what they call as the sort of mode of transport that's going, you know, the high intensity activity and so on. Well, uh, as I said in the Pakaranga ward, and remember the ward that I represent, just this one ward called Howick Ward, we are bigger than any other city in New Zealand, just my ward, than other than Wellington or Christchurch. So we've got 157 or 158,000 people. It's a huge, it's bigger than Hamilton. It's bigger than, mm. it's bigger than Tauranga and so on. And 92.8% say in the census that they need the motor vehicle. And yet what is all of the focus gone on? It's how do we block off lanes? How do we stop you traveling? How do we actually reduce the, the arteries that you can move in in order to put big gold-plated projects like cycleways, which you even if you were a keen cyclist, you couldn't cycle from where I live into the city every day. You'd take hours to get in there and hours to get back. So when I hear the new chairman of AT saying he's a big fan of cycling and he made big store of the fact when he spoke to our council that he's a mammal, I didn't know what that was, I have to admit, and I looked it up. It's a middle-aged men in lycra. And he's he's why proud. was he hired then? He should have been told to sling his hook. We should have got yeah. a taxi driver to to be he, the chief he, executive of AT. He's proud of this is the new chairman. He's proud of being a mammal, and, and he lives in Parnell. And I thought, actually, you know, if I lived in Parnell, I could probably cycle into the city. It's all downhill, isn't it? You just drop downhill onto the flat, go along the Tamaki Drive, and turn into Commerce Street or whatever, and you're there. But that's not Auckland. Auckland starts at the Bombay Hills in the south, goes up to Walkworth in the north, and people work everywhere and they live everywhere else. We had a particular guy who had a company uh, in Glenfield when I was a member of parliament here. He lived up on Music Point on the tip of that peninsula at Bucklands Beach, but his company was based in Glenfield. And every day he had to work his way down the back. Bucklands mm. Road, and then across the Pakaranga Highway, and then on the State Highway 1 and try to get across the Harbour Bridge, and so on. And the, the, if you were in North Korea, you would just say, well, we're moving you. Your house is sold today, and we're going to put you in the house next to where you It's not your place. house anyway. We're going to move you to a new government yeah, house in Glenfield. He then stops being the chief executive of that job a year later, and he moves somewhere else. Well, we'll move. But you can't do that. We live in a country where we're free to live where you want and so on. So I'm, I'm really hopeful at this point. I've heard nothing but good signs come out of the new government about what they're going to do with uh, road user charging for vehicles, what they are going to do with um, things like getting rid of the ridiculous road to zero stuff and so on, and start having safety at reasonable cost. We want to see the road toll come down, but it has to be not at the expense of the total economic operation of the country. Just a final point, um, harking back to AT again, I see on Monday they shut down the rail network because apparently it was too hot in Auckland and the uh, the tracks could buckle on the on the rail network. And they didn't think that we could actually look up what the temperature was in Auckland for the previous five days when four of those five days were higher temperatures than what Monday was. And they didn't shut the network down on those four days. Yeah. So what's going on at AT? And um, February? Who would have thought it would be hot in February? <laughs> so are we what I've heard, and I, I can't verify this, so they might have a bit of pushback. But I was told last night by somebody who I think knows pretty much what the Kiwi Rail briefing said 
It was some tracks south of Otahu on the southern line for the next four stations that they were concerned about the condition of the of the curves and the train being able to cave because of the expansion. But AT didn't say, okay, well, we'll stop the trains at Otahu and we'll bus you for the last four. Bu- bus the five people that are on the train. What, what, oh, I don't know what it was five, but. Well, I was t- talking about the conductor and the driver and like, the oh, driver's include, assistant include, as well. Include those, yeah, that's fine. Yeah. But there was evidently, they shut it down all around the place. It was, you know, lines on all over the place got closed and it was chaos and so on. And I kept thinking, well, actually, that's not Kiwi Rail's fault. AT overreacted. Now, AT might come back and say, not true. We only did it on that little bit of line on the south where there was a problem. But I think not. And I think AT carry a bit of a can for the overreaction. They cancelled trains left, right and centre. And Kiwi Rail were only saying it was that southern t- line south of Odo. You could even still go to Odo from the city, no problem. But trains should stop there for today. But, I mean, you know, who, who knew that it got hot in February? Well, it wasn't even that hot. It was hot <laughs> the week before. But, you know, this is a problem with public transport. It seems that public transport picks you up from somewhere you're not at. Yep. Right? And takes you somewhere that you don't want to go to. Yeah. Well, let, let me tell you, the co- I cop a lot of flack. While I was transport minister, I copped it, and I still cop it at the council. Uh, you just hate public transport. And I don't. And I'll tell you why I can prove that. I worked for British Airways in London, and the entire time I was working for British Airways, I never owned a car because I didn't need a car. Mm-hmm. I could go from anywhere to anywhere, either in the, the underground, which was the most used for me, or I could use one of the red bus networks, the big double debt, or, or I could even use a black taxi if it was needed. And the cost of owning and running and storing a car was prohibitive. But here, where I live in Pakaranga, even when they build this eastern busway, which, remember, just crosses the Pamua Bridge and then dives south, won't come out to where all the population It doesn't come out to Bucklands Beach and Howick and Cockle Bay and Mallons Bay. It doesn't come out to where the population is. It dives south the moment it's crossed over and heads down through Botany going out down towards Flatbush. And so... How do you get to use that if you want to when you live where the vast bulk of the population out here lives? Oh, I know. You drive your car to a park and ride. Well, that may be, but there's But they'll no... only build one level of the park and ride. It'll be full instantly. Oh, no, no, no. There is no plan on the Eastern Busway because I asked them yesterday. I met with the Eastern Busway people yesterday, and I said, is there any plan for even any one maybe park and rides? And they said, no, unlike the Northern Busway where there are park and rides, and they said the problem is that once we built them, they were full within minutes, and you, you know, they're, they're packed. So... You can bigger public transport. How about we make it convenient? If I, I actually started because the motorway got so chocker at the hours I was trying to get in and out of town. I decided I would park around Glen Innes and jump on the train. And for my first three or four weeks at council, it worked brilliantly. I could be in downtown in sort of 10, 15 minutes, go to the council meeting, jump on the train, get back. But guess what happened? It was only, well, I don't know, three or four weeks or five weeks into me being a councillor that AT announced that the Eastern Line was stopping for a year. For a year. Not not for the afternoon, not for that week, but for a year. It's only just started up again in January. 
So what do you think people do? They go to alternatives and you got And um, they don't go back. They don't go back. There's, I mean, that's the thing. If you have to, I mean, I lived in Whangaparaua for a number of years, you know, seven years or so, and they had park and rides that were always full. Yes. So, so if you have to drive your car to get on a bus, you'll just carry why on. Why don't you just carry on and skip the bus part? You'll just carry on. And that's yeah. the so, so I'm not anti-public transport. I, I love the fact that public transport works. And I've got a great quote for you. I was giving a speech about the balance between public transport and roading networks and and how we get the state highways to all connect up so that traffic can flow uh, back in the 90s. And a lady jumped up and she was real greeny and she was angry at what I was saying. And she said, I'm telling you, I've just been in Hong Kong and they've got the most fabulous underground rail system and that's what we need. Now, remember at this stage, Auckland was less than a million and New, and New Zealand was less than four. Mm. I said to her, Ma'am, I've got you a deal. I'm Minister of Transport. I've got the power. I'll do you a deal here and right here tonight. You give me 7 million people between Parnell and Ponsonby, which is what Hong Kong mm. is, yeah. and I'll give you a fabulous underground rail network. But we've got less than the population of Sydney in our entire country. We've got less than the population of Melbourne in our entire country. And so these grandiose views of the world, you know, oh, I've been to London, look at their underground rail. Jesus, well, I don't know what greater London is, but it's 15 or 17 million people. So let's stop being silly about it. Let's mm. do the things that work. Let's make sure the benefit-cost ratios are really clearly identified. Let's not build the gold-plated cycleways because we are building cycleways that could be built for a tenth of that much in terms of how what we built and all these bloody road uh, blocks along the side of them to, as you said out in, in uh, Cavendish, just just a, sh- a sit on eyesore. If common sense prevails, and I'm very hopeful that with what the new minister said is about his priorities and what the mm. government was, then we'll actually return to let's start focusing on the biggest users of our roading network, and that's motorists. And by the way, what contribution do cyclists pay towards their roads? None. 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 People accuse me of being a a hostile to public transport. I'm a big fan of public transport. I'm seen on the back of a bus (laughs) constantly with the RCR advertising. And that's the closest you're going to get to me to public transport. No, no well, I'm different. I, I loved it. In London, I loved it. I thought it was just fabulous. And I could get to Twickenham by the, the underground and I could go to down to uh, to watch Wimbledon yeah. tennis. It was, and it was, and it was rapid. Yeah, it, you, you, but it worked. I never looked at the timetable. I just whipped down the stairs at my local station, stand on the platform, and I knew within three to four minutes another train came through, jump on, use the green line, go to the circle line, catch the Piccadilly line, bang, you're there. And what made it even better in recent years is I tried to buy an Oyster card, and the guy behind the counter at at the station said, what do you want an Oyster card for? I said, so I can use the train for a week because it's cheaper if you buy the car. He said, you don't need to. I said, well, he said, just use your credit card. And I said, well, how do I do that? He said, you just swipe it across the terminal like you used to do the Oyster. So I thought, oh, yeah, I bet my ASB card from New Zealand will work. Walked up to the turnstile, swiped, and it did. Got on the bloody train, got off at the other end, swiped off, and I looked at my ASB account the next day, and there was a 38 pence charge for the use of the train. So yeah. That's what changes it, the convenience, the speed, and it comes when you need it and you don't have to worry about parking. And you need a population base to support it. 
the population base gradually grows and starts to make it work. And so, it's like London, you ask cycle um, act, act, you know, activists, you say to them, well, give us some examples where cycleways work. And they always, always, without fail, say Amsterdam. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. So well, how are you going to get rid of all the hills in Auckland then to make it like Amsterdam? Yeah, but, but all sorts of other things. The, the, the history of how a country grew up and what it – I mean, they've got lots more intense living in apartments than we've ever mm. had. We, we had the quarter acre section for so long, and it's going to take a long time. You you literally can't compare apples and oranges in this stuff. We've got a specific set of topography with hills and, and some difficult stuff. Wellington's even worse in terms of how, how the hell cycleways will work around Wellington. You finish work and you've got to face the daunting charge of about an hour of going uphill into crippling. So, look, common sense should prevail. Realistic benefit-cost ratios should be taken into account. And this idea of some, I will decide on behalf of you what's best for you rather than you make that determination. Mm. And on that note, Morris, I think we've run out of time. Good to be with you, mate. Pleasure to have you back on The Crunch, and we'll have to make this a regular occurrence. Sounds good to me. All right. Thank you very much. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Morris is a fantastic font of knowledge, especially about transport. Auckland Council really needs to get on and start doing the things that they're elected to do. Perhaps Wayne Brown might like to listen more and speak less. Let me know your thoughts on this topic, good or bad, by emailing inbox at realitycheck.radio or text to 2057. You've heard the words open, fair, both sides of the story. It's easy to say them, but practicing them often seems like a bridge too far. New Zealand, it's time for... A reality check. Reality check. RCR. Reality check radio. Rational discussion. Common sense. And open debate for real. With me, Paul Brennan. You know, you just can't make this stuff up. You couldn't write the script. Veteran broadcaster Peter Williams. Where is the evidence they actually make a difference? It turns out that was a very fair question to ask. Taking on the mainstream, Chantel Baker. Mainstream media, as usual, in their little perch. The man who cares so much and whose background is for real, Rodney Hyde. The doctors don't believe them. They can't get ACC. They can't work. They're told it's all in their head. Along with a raft of contributors to inform, entertain and bring the truth back to New Zealand media. It's time for a reality check, all right. RCR, Reality Check Radio at www.realitycheck.radio. We've arrived. You're listening to The Crunch with Cam Slater. Right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Now it's time for Cam's Buddies. This week we'll find out what they think about the rollout of facial recognition in foodstuffs pack-and-save stores and how Countdown Woolworths have added facial recognition conditions to the terms and conditions of their new card. My producer has them all lined up and ready to go. Let's go now to Cam's Buddies. Welcome to Cam's Buddies, Lindley. You were a star last week. You We had so much feedback about how great you were, so it's great to have you back on the show. Oh, 
Well, thanks very much. I'm not used to being regarded as great, but I'll take that. <laughs> you, well, you should take it, you know, because the feedback in the mailbag was that you were an absolute star and uh, and a voice of reason. And, uh, you know, I, I just love have, uh, having that little chat with you. And so we're chatting again this week. So this week, I thought we'd throw a bit of a curveball. Um, you would have possibly seen the news that uh, Foodstuffs, which controls New World and Pack and Save and Foursquare, are rolling out a trial of facial recognition in about 12 uh, locations. And then also uh, Countdown, which is renamed to Woolworths, have just uh, launched their replacement to the one card, the, the new orange card that you've got. And in the terms and conditions that no one ever reads, it says in there that um, they can track your vehicle in the car park and they can match it to your card and uh, and possibly do facial recognition as well. What are your thoughts on that? Well, uh, I am pretty stunned, to be fair, but I, I must uh, put in a disclosure here. I don't shop at uh, Countdown. I find it a very disagreeable place in general. Yep. Um, but... I'm really worried about their mice cam. <laughs> I mean, I've got down a bit of a here, mouse you probably well, you've probably read that we've uh, got a very special mouse down here in Christchurch at like Countdown. Salad. Yes, and he's been facially recognised now as a thief of potato and coomera salad. And I'm really quite worried about him because, you know, with animal rights and everything, I think, well, all mice look the same. <clears throat> so, you know, will they be targeted unfairly? That's my worry. Well, it could be, um, you can't really say racially profiled, mousily profiled no. maybe. But, I mean, what if they get a, a rat in there Um could the rat be mistaken as a mouse, or could a mouse be mistaken as a rat? Well, they could be. Uh, they could be. And, of course, if they're stealing, they are rats, aren't they? Rat well, bags. <laughs> rat, rat bags. Well, bags. Well, you have to provide your own bags now at Countdown. So <laughs> you maybe, <do> too. <laughs> maybe it's not a rat bag. <laughs> oh, you shouldn't get me going. You know, I have done a lot of caricatures in my past, and uh, this just winds me up, you know. I can see all sorts of visions. I can see rats pushing trolleys out the door and everything now. So we better get back to the serious side of it. Well, I remember when my grandfather um, had leukemia and he was in the hospital and I'd go up to visit him and he'd say, shh, shh, Cam, they're in the corner. And I'd say, oh, what, Grandpa, what's in the corner? He says, they're rats. They're rats and yeah. they've got, they've got uh, green singlets and red underpants on. Oh, dear. <laughs> That's a worry. Well, those are good drugs, if you ask me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, could have seen worse, couldn't he? Yeah, but that's the thing, isn't it? These, the reason why these stores are looking at uh, facial recognition is because there are rats or vermin that are stealing from the shop and they're, and they're at their wits' end because it doesn't seem that the police seem that interested in accosting these thieves these rats that are stealing from the store and the, the store can't stop them. They can't physically stop them. So they, they need to have some sort of system in place to try and identify them before they get in the store to steal a trolley's worth of groceries. 
Yes, but I do fear that there'll be violence in, at that moment anyway, but I'll just relay a little thing, experience I had um, several years ago. I had an overnight stay in Papakura, which I had done on quite a few occasions um, in line with the Karaka um, thoroughbred yearling sales. Yep. And I was absolutely shocked beyond belief. I wandered down to Countdown, as I usually did, and was confronted by a bunch of hoodies lying sprawled all around the floor in the entranceway. Yeah, yeah. And you, you, you had to step over their legs to get in, and there was a huge security guard standing at the door, something I've never seen ever in my life. You know, I'm a quiet South Islander. Mm, this is and normal in Auckland. But I'd never seen it. To, to even see a security guard was like horrifying to me and I actually well you know as a woman on their own I feared for my life in that scene and I took to my scrapers and good choice because about six months later a security guard at that very supermarket was killed mm. one of one of the thugs that hang around the doorway ran at him and King hit him and he collapsed and died on the spot so yeah. that's that would probably be, oh, I don't know, between five and eight years ago. Yeah. Now, no supermarket should have to put up with that. Well, you know, but, in Auckland, uh, security guards are routine at every supermarket. You know, I go to the countdown here in Takapuna, and they have a permanent security guard there at the at the entrance. And uh, that, that's, that's just normal in Auckland to see security guards. And, you know, I was, I was shopping there the other day and I saw someone go into the, um, with their trolley into the self-checkout area. And uh, what they do is they sort of pretend that they're going to scan uh, the, mm. the stuff and then they scan it all, stick it back in the trolley and then bolt out the door. And uh, that's, that's apparently quite common. Uh, and what happens then is the, the supermarket uh, staff have to then go to that terminal and cancel each item out individually, and it takes time to do all of that. So it's a real problem in Auckland. Uh, I don't know what it's like in the rest of the country, but uh, certainly there's uh, large numbers of people that are entering these supermarkets stealing whole trolleyfuls of... of um, we're not just putting talking about a ham down the down the pants here, we're talking about a whole trolley and they just push the whole trolley out and load it into the car and drive off. Yes, well, of course, they've learnt to do it. They can get away with it. And um, so so they do do it. Um, like I shopped at Pack and Save today, mm. which is an offshoot, offshoot of New World. Uh, so my experience is completely different to yours. No security guards, lovely, friendly staff, nice, open, friendly shop. Um, and superb service, lovely customers. You know, just we just don't see any of that. So how fortunate are we? But, you know, I don't really rate it as supermarket crime at all. I think it's about all crime. Mm. I think it's about broken down family structure. It's about uneducated, unemployed youth. Mm -hmm. It's about... They're often unsociable, thieving role models. Yep. It's about victim identity, which breeds entitlement. Mm -hmm. It's about acceptance of crime, lack of police and judicial commitment. 
It's about the pathetic dumbing down of the law. It's about society's overall drop in standards. And I quote, thou shalt not steal. Yeah. And that does not have any, that has no clauses or sub-clauses. No principles. Or anything of the sort. And we've come so far away from that that this is the result. Because they don't only steal at the supermarkets, they walk straight into people's homes and well, steal, even well, when even, even when the owner's in the home. Even MPs do it. MPs go, do it. Yeah, and, and everyone goes, oh, well, you know, poor... Poor goal res, you know, we have to understand that she's under pressure. Oh, they're there. We should be saying this is unacceptable. It's unacceptable for an MP. It's unacceptable for a general citizen to thieve out of stores. There's a reason why there's a crime. And, you know, we need to have our police to start to do the little things like stopping shoplifting, like, you know, going and looking at buildings that have got a broken window or something like that. Because if you look after the little things, the big things get taken care of by themselves. Well, that's right. And you know how that worked with Rudy Giuliani in New, in New York. Very successful. I mean, he started off, everyone said he couldn't do it. He was mad and it was uh, impossible. Um, and he just organised um, a fleet of buses and, and staff. And people even got uh, chucked in the bus and taken off and locked up for jaywalking, um, being a bit menacing, um, graffiti, anything of that sort. They were bundled up and locked up. And it wasn't long at all that um, the crime started to drop and that just had a sort of ongoing effect. Of course, now it's the opposite, but it proved that that works. If you stamp out the uh, first little nibble of crime that the rest follows. We have no standards at all, really, now. Well, not not compared There's to no what consequences. I There's know? no real consequences for committing these crimes, isn't no. it? And, and when, by the time they actually do get nabbed, um, they're up before the beak. They get a, a slap on the wrist with a well-soaked bus ticket, uh, if they can mm-hmm. find a bus ticket these days. But usually, if they can't find a bus ticket, I'm sure there's a, a, a spare tissue round that they can soak in the liberal tears, uh, jug of liberal tears they have on the judge's bench and give them a, a yeah. right good toweling with the wet tissue and uh, and there's no consequences. Well, of course, it's not, you know, it's just like from my breadth of time on the, on the earth, I have seen such a change, um, you know, in if. When I was a child, you know, if I did anything like that, the local policeman would have got me by the scruff of the neck, taken me down to the police station and given me a thick ear. Well, my, and, co- my um, cousin was yeah. a, a police officer in a small uh, town uh, south of Auckland. And, uh, you know, um, he was known as a bit of a hard man. And uh, he used to go down to the pub on a Friday, find out who, who he was after, point to them and say, outside, <laughs> give them a clip and tell them to, uh, you know, get round and take that stuff back, otherwise there's going to be uh, harsher consequences than that. Well, that's right. But you see, things have changed so much, and because the other thing they did was drag them home to the parents, you know, um, which was sort of the pinnacle of all shame. But a lot of these um, younger criminals, they actually haven't got any parents as such. No. They seem to be just running wild between family members and camping here and camping there. It's just a total breakdown. Yeah. So, 
There's a lot you of know, hard work I that's got to go in, isn't there, to, to solve this problem? And and I'm not sure that facial recognition and cameras is going to do it. It won't do it at all because all that will happen is um, the poor staff member that's got to confront those people and say, Oi, you're out. Um, there's a moment there of confrontation and sooner or later um, somebody will do something violent in that situation. Yeah. And of course they've got away with um, taking these trolleys out to their cars. So they're going to be very aggressive when uh, they find they can't do it or they're confronted for it. They've got yeah. away with it, you know. Yeah. I mean, I feel sorry for the staff who work at the supermarket you know, I was down at, uh, again, down at Takapuna Countdown or Woolworths as it is now um, the other day and someone was, you know, screaming at one of the staff members and um, they were just sitting there and taking it. Well, I don't have to take that. So I said to them, you know, take your attitude outside. Oh, we don't need this. And they said, well, who are you? And I said, well, I'm someone who's quite prepared to get involved. So be my guest. Well, they decided that discretion was a better part of valour and slipped Alf out the door. But, um, oh, you know, I just well. felt sorry for the staff, and she's a lovely lady there. She's always humming and singing as she as she does her work. Mm. She's a real delight. And, yes. you know, I go there and um, and I'm thinking, you know, to myself, shall I go through the self-checkout or shall I go and be pleasant to this lady and make her day? And that's what I do, I, even if it means I have to stand three or four people in the line to to go through so I can just ask her how her day's going and, and enjoy it. And they just don't get that, and I feel sorry for them. Well, they're brilliant people, and a couple of years ago when <clears throat> I had a tragedy to, to face, mm. um, it was just so uplifting for me to go into places like that, and the staff were just so nice. Um, you know, they say, hi, how are you, and how's your day, and everything, and it just is uplifting to the customers. Um, it's just rather a shame that it's, dropping away. I mean, they must be really nervous. But I suppose it will fuel um, click and collect anyway. I mean, we don't have to go to the supermarket to be abused, do we, I suppose? No, I don't do right. click and collect because I like going there. And I, like you, I like to um, meet up with the staff. They, they are lovely. Well, they are down here anyway. Oh, look, they are lovely and, and they do a really hard job and they don't get paid nearly enough. So, you know, I hope this uh, works out for them, but I suspect you're right and there'll be a bit of violence and um, that'll be um, sad, but we'll see what happens. Hey, Lindley, uh, I've got mm. to go to to Paul. He's uh, on the line next. He's waiting in the queue. So thank you so much for your contribution Excellent. and we'll talk again next week, eh? Thanks, Cam. That's fun. Take okay, care. Lindley, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Welcome to Cam's Buddies, Paul. Good to have you on the line again this week. Hi, how are you? Oh, box of birds. Fantastic. I thought today's topic uh, is one that's uh, I've seen hitting the news and just been talking to Lindley about that. Um, you might be aware that Foodstuffs, which is New World, Pack and Save and Foursquare, are rolling out a trial of facial recognition cameras. And then also Countdown, which is renamed as Woolworths, have just rolled out their new, uh, you know, loyalty card. And in the terms and conditions from that, they they say that they can track where your car's parked in the car park, and link it to your card. And if they roll out facial recognition, they'll be able to do that and link that to your card as well. What are your thoughts on those? 
Oh, that's interesting. Um, I'm a bit anti the state um, having recognition, and I know it's not the state, it's the supermarkets, mm-hmm. but once it's the thinning of the wedge, um, when they're saying that um, gay people just wanted to be able to be getting married, it, there was a thinning of the wedge. Now, now everything has gone kind of... I don't have a problem with gay people getting married, to be fair, but it's gone crazy in all sorts of broke behaviour. And I think facial recognition software in a supermarket, what for? Now, I guess um, under the Labour government, I think burglaries in supermarkets, I heard some while back, had doubled. And um, you see pictures of um, security guards at supermarkets getting assaulted while people are trying to walk out with trolley loads and bag loads of groceries. So... My understanding is if there's 200 thefts at a supermarket in a week, there's a good chance it's done by 10 to 15 people. Yeah. And so there's the, the same people are doing this, the thieving. So to know that you've got someone in your supermarket that is a thief from facial recognition software, I could see how that could be handy. But what I don't think is handy is all the rest of us getting facially recognised and it moves on from there to, um, I see there's places around the world that um, have facial recognition software so you can pay with your face. So you don't have to have your phone if you want to go and buy food, I think, is a particular one. And so, you, so you, they've got facial recognition software with you and you walk in and you just pay with your face um, as far as the recognition is concerned. Now, my thoughts on that are, it's, that's scary stuff, because when we had the um, the podium of truth, and then we had, oh, yes, it's all right for you to go to the supermarket, um, but you weren't allowed to go to hairdressers, and you weren't allowed to go to um, your Cafes gym. Cafes and restaurants all and all that sort of stuff, yeah. Yes, yeah, so we were all locked down, and we were locked down because of a government decree. If they then take over these facial recognition things, that the supermarkets put in place because they say with a court order, no, we want to have access to that too now. And then they decide to bring in your 15-minute city and say, oh, well, you shouldn't be at the supermarket. You're 20 minutes from home by car, not 15 by foot. And all these sorts of things. I think it's the thinning of the wedge as far as, um, like, if they had more burly staff challenging people that, Steal. That's probably a a reasonable way of doing it, where you're not having to impinge on all other customers' rights. And now he also said that if you've got nothing to hide, you've got nothing to fear. But I think that's bollocks. You've only got nothing to hide because we're citizens that are peace loving and mm. um, we're good citizens. Until they change the rules on us and make draconian, stupid rules like you can't go places without a mask or you can't go places without having a vaccine passport by vaccines that are a particular way. And and that's just one thing that, that we know that they've done and they've been stupid about. And, and the fact is their vaccines have increased, is my belief, the um, the all-reason um, all, mortality. Yeah, all-cause so, mortality. Yes, all-cause mortality has gone up. Now, I don't like the fact that I can't go to the groceries and, and buy to the store and buy food in the future if my face doesn't fit because some bureaucrats decided that I don't follow the correct amount of rules. And so 
I understand if the thieving doubled under the Labour government and since COVID till now, I understand why it could be something to do. I just don't like it because I don't think that people should be in control of knowing who's gone where and why and how and did you come to the supermarket and where did you park and all these other different things. Do you think maybe that this is a cunning ploy to get us to wear masks to the supermarket? So we get a mask with, you know, um, a toothless grin on the face of it or, um, you know, something, or wear, wear something zany so you can't be facially recognised and then they win in the long run because now we're all wearing masks at the supermarket. <laughs> well, it could be that. But I see um, China's very interested in getting all male DNA Y um, chromosome mapped so that they can get a profile of everybody, everywhere and what they do. And that's basically to help with authoritarianism. If they know what everyone's doing and what everyone's likely to do, then that's where that goes. And whilst it's only a supermarket facial recognition, these they build up databases on all sorts of people for all sorts of reasons, and suddenly we are not anything like as free as we were. Yeah. Uh, you're right, it is a slippery slope. And, um, you know, we've, we've seen cafes... Uh, in New Zealand, we're seeing other businesses, um, Fuller's Ferries, for example, they, uh, they're cashless now, and so you have to use a card um, for everything. Um, you know, I try and use cash as much as I can, and, I'm, and I know you do as well, but uh, there's a whole lot of people out there who are blithely just um, complying with this and uh, carrying on uh, thinking that there's no slippery slope, but um, what we've seen in the last four years is that the slippery slope is real, and it can be quite slippery at times. Absolutely. And when you see things like we're in a cashless society, but the truckers um, in Canada didn't do the right thing as through the government and got their bank accounts frozen. Different slippery slope then, isn't it? Because now you you can't eat, you can't buy stuff, um, you can't sell stuff and put the money into your account. Um, I always just think, there's no reason for people to find too much about you because your own privacy and who you are doesn't help to be shared. And I'm, I'm a relatively private person anyway. I don't particularly like going on um, where people are recognising me on the TV or anything like that. I just don't do it. But in um, times gone by, I might have been more keen. But now I just have seen the government can't be trusted with the power they've got. And it won't be long before, if all the supermarkets do it, then many other places do it, then government will be doing things like um, getting a a warrant to say we have access to your security now. And then I think we're in in the wrong side of history. Mm. It's something to watch out for. And I I tend to agree with you, the slippery slope is real. And, uh, you know, how long will it take before um, they've got facial recognition at service stations? or in you know, booze shops or vape stores. It, it, it just keeps on going, and then we've got cameras everywhere, and we no longer have any privacy. Exactly. And they know where all your movements are, the sort of things you... So then they target advertising to, toward you, and not everybody has got a good budgeting and structure with their finances, so that when things are being targeted, they're saying, oh, it's a sign, I should be buying that. Next thing you know, they're spending money on things that they shouldn't have because it's been targeted specifically for them because of the preferences of what they search. 
Mm. Yeah, it's terrible. And it and it will continue unless we actually say something. But uh, Lindley made a, a comment. She said um, she's a bit concerned about these cameras because at the local countdown in near her in the South Island, there's a little mouse that's been stealing um, salads. Uh, it's been caught on camera and she's wondering, you know, how will we be able to tell which mouse has been stealing because they all kind of look the same. And I said, oh, you, you sound like you're profiling the mouse. She says, well, they might be rats because they're stealing. And those are the types of people who steal. It was quite hilarious, actually. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes. No, I um, I think that um, without it, I'm happy to shop and um, uh, I'm thinking that we might just be doing um, grocery ordering online and get it delivered to us. And it's probably worse still because they really know you're buying everything. But hey, that, well, that's, that's the um, thing. You you, you you haven't been uh, you haven't challenged the till in the supermarket for quite some time, though, have you? I have not. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks for your call, Paul, and uh, we'll talk next week. Okay, take care, Cam. Have a good day. Bye for now. Well, thank you. Welcome to Cam's Buddies. Good afternoon, Cameron. How are you this week? Oh, you know, usual. Box of birds, same as I am every week. Irrepressible. <laughs> Boxing. Happy. Happy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All, happy all... with the current political state of things. Oh, look, I'm always happy. It doesn't matter what's happening with politics. There's always something for me in it. If you're losing, you're still winning, you reckon? I never lose. I never lose. That's the great thing about politics. You don't like the rules? Change the rules. Ignore the rules? Do whatever you want. It's fantastic. Anyway, this week, you may have seen yeah. uh, Foodstuffs, which is New World and Pack and Slave, and New World are trialling, oh, and Foursquare, are trialling facial recognition cameras. And also Woolworths, formerly Countdown, have launched their new card on the beginning of February and part of the terms and conditions in there is uh, a right for them to track your vehicle, record your vehicle, mark it against your card and in the future they may want to look at doing facial recognition. What's your thoughts on these things? Well, I've been thinking about this. I'm in two minds. I mean, five years ago I would have been horrified against, you know, against it. But having been shopping in the last six months several times and seen uh people stealing trolleys and literally nothing happening. And then when I've talked to the checkout ladies, I've said, why don't you guys call the cops? They said, they don't do anything. They don't even bother coming. Yeah, that's so this the problem, is just isn't a it? reaction. It's a reaction from the lawlessness of the last six years and private companies are doing something about it themselves. So I'm not, what, I'm not sure I'm we... happy about it, but um, I feel sorry for the supermarkets where they've got hordes of people that are going into these supermarkets filling up their trolleys and then walking out the door without a buy or leave, uh, taking all the stuff with them. Yeah, I've seen a guy walk out at my supermarket with a trolley full of meat and just ran away and not even chased. They they followed him out the door and he just ran out and then ran across across the road and chucked it all into a boot and then drove off. And apparently they sell it. There's, you know, there's points in South Auckland and West Auckland where they sell sell it. Well, we're we're paying for that ultimately because the, the shops have a certain amount of what they call. I don't lose, mate. That was my yeah. next point. Yeah, they, they call it shrinkage. The inflation. Yeah, they call it shrinkage, and uh, they just load the costs up, and they'll know um, on a weekly basis what the shrinkage is, and uh, they'll uh, price accordingly. Mm-hmm. And, and and it's us 
uh, law-abiding citizens that are getting punished for it. Yeah, and that's exactly right. That's that's the point of it. It's adding to the inflation and adding to the food costs. It's, it's just the so unless we see the police actually start to police our communities and have politicians that support policy around you know law enforcement, then we're just going to see more private companies move to protect their staff and their product. And that's it's just another result of the six shit years we had. You know, uh, yeah, the the, cr- the crime-friendly Ardoon regime. Yeah, and that that's what it is. I mean, you can't blame the supermarkets. I'd do the same. I mean, I I don't like it. Don't get me wrong. I don't like any tracking or, but they're trying to protect them, their assets, and that's you know they never used to have to worry about it. Well, Paul but was can on you before. Can steal like a, yeah. Sorry, yeah. So Paul was on before, and he was saying this is this feels like the slippery slope again. That that they've got facial recognition here. And um, next thing, they'll extend it somewhere else, and then we won't be able to use cash, and we'll be have to pay for things with our face and a whole lot of stuff like that. He just not keen at it, uh, about it at, at all, and neither was Lindley. Yeah, well, I'm not keen on it. Don't get me wrong, but I just understand why it's here. But it's it's. I understand it's, that totally, but it doesn't mean we have to be happy failure. About but it. what are we supposed to do? I mean, well, we can't stop them. There's no just I mean, don't shop there. Countdown's got mask, cameras. Yeah, well, that's the thing. I said to Paul, maybe it's a cunning plan, cunning ploy to um, get us to all wear masks at supermarkets. <laughs> yeah. Suddenly, all the people who hate masks will start wearing masks and all the. Yeah. Anyway, it's a pretty crazy world, Ken. You know totally. So. <laughs> Lindley suggests that like- it's a, a long list of things, a breakdown in law and order, uh, a lack of uh, a stable home life, uh, no consequences, uh, a whole list of things uh, out there. I'm not sure we can fix this um, easily, and I don't think cameras are going to fix it either. The cameras won't fix it. They just make it harder for the thieves to operate because next time they walk back in the supermarket and the alarm will sound, it's thanks to some AI Face detection, and then or they'll, they'll, or the they'll wear, yeah. or they'll wear a mask and uh, and put things on their face to to defeat the facial recognition and just keep on stealing. Yeah, but I, I guess they would draw great suspicion walking in a balaclava or whatever. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 terrible. It's just another bad sign for our society. That it's like this, but you know, politicians don't seem to do much about it. Well, I don't know if they care. Well, I think some of them care, but there's not a lot that they can do about it without doing, pulling some really big levers, you know, like enforcing mm. education or enforcing families or, you know. Um, or putting thieves in jail. Well, look, I'd be, I'm a super fan of putting people in jail, mate. I just, and people say the cost of jail is more expensive, but just make jails cheaper to run. Well, they're not that expensive to run in places like India and China and the Philippines. <laughs> Maybe we should outsource our prisons to to, to private operators that, that are used to, um, you know, serving up, serving up gruel and have a thin blanket um, and 15 to a cell. Imagine how that would go down with the work exporting our prisoners for their terms. <laughs> It'd go down like a cup of cold sick. But, yeah, we could just, Outsource prisons and just pay them a yearly fee, which would be a lot cheaper. And then we wouldn't have NIMBYs complaining about a prison in their backyard either. So it would fix that as well. 
maybe we could have like a con air, right? You know, the flight's leaving Friday and it's going to be full of 200 criminals. I mean, if the British could do it, in sense, if the British could transport them back in the 1800s to Australia, why don't we, you know, bring that back? <laughs> well, yeah, this is, you've certainly walked off the uh, topic there, Ken, but anyway, I, yeah, look, I don't, I don't know what to do about the facial recognition because I understand it and I, I don't particularly keen on it, but I, I don't know how we stop them here, like, because we've got to stop the thievery. So unless we see some good criminal justice, I don't think we're going to see the rollback of security features either. No, and I agree with you. I don't think we are either. All right, Jimmy, thanks for your, your call this there. week. On, one last kick. Oh, yeah. One last kick. How come Costa's still there? He was overseer of all this crap. Yeah, I don't know why he's still there either. Maybe it's his pally text to Mark Mitchell, although I don't think Mark Mitchell would care too much about that. Anyway, I, thought, I, I honestly thought he would be one change that we'd see quite smartly, and and that would see a big change in direction from the police. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I need to look oh, well. up what his next term, how and when his term is up. It might be coming up close anyway. In which case, it's cheaper to leave him there and expire his term and see you later, Cyril. Yeah, true. Okay, thanks, Cam. All right, mate. Talk, talk to you next week. Yes. Welcome to Cam's buddies, Miles. Good afternoon. How are you, Cam? Um, box of birds as usual, you know, causing mischief, enjoying life. It's a uh, wonderful warm weather in Auckland at the moment. Apparently, it's global boiling, but I, I think we used to call it summer. Yep, I'm pretty sure these are the summers I can remember from way back when. <laughs> exactly when uh, when I was a little boy running around with my uh, Fiji feet in the Auckland summer. Uh, you know, we had uh, brown hills and, uh, you know, the, the fields were dusty and dry for weeks and weeks, if not months on end. It's good to be back to yeah, how it had, was 40 years ago. And we didn't have water restrictions, but that's a whole different topic. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I want to talk to you about tonight is this development of uh, foodstuffs and Woolworths and Countdown and rolling out facial recognition in their supermarkets. Now, it's a trial to start with, but we all know what happens with these trials. They come to us, you know, stunning success, and then they're rolled out everywhere, and all of a sudden uh, we're being monitored and facially recognised when we go to the supermarket and buy, you know, buy all sorts of things, and uh, we might not want other people to know that we're buying those things. Oh, look, facial recognition is a, is a can of worms. I really love facial recognition. I want it to be everywhere. After all, you know, guess what? What have you got to lose if you've got nothing to hide? And can you imagine what life would be like if you uh, had uh, facial recognition and you went up to the checkout counter and didn't have to use cash? Can you imagine? Ah, yeah, right. That's how it'll go. Not. Yeah, it's, it, Paul said it's a slippery slope, and uh, I agree with him on that. If you if you let them wedge this in, uh, then next minute there'll be facial recognition at service stations, facial recognitions at, at booze shops, you know, and then it'd be very easy for them to then link your um, payment cards and say, well, I think you've bought enough wine this week. Um, we're not going to have any more wine in your trolley at the supermarket anymore. You're, you're a bit of a lush. Can you, can you imagine if they decided that they didn't want to serve you, well, guess what? The checkout wouldn't work, nothing would work. Facial recognition would be 
um, used against you. If they suddenly decided for one reason or another, oh, this chap didn't have a vaccination, we can't have him in the supermarket, oh, this chap, he thinks and votes conservative, we can't have him. And what about all those pesky Christians? We can't have them in the supermarket. That's the thin end of the wedge, I believe. Yep. The thin end of the wedge is true, and the trouble with the thin end of the wedge is that what usually follows is the thick end of the wedge. (laughs) Exactly, and that's why I'm such a big fan of facial recognition. Can you just imagine how it will make society so much better to live in? It'll stop crime. It'll it'll make our lives so beautiful. Of course it will. Yes, we really believe that. Yeah, just like, um, you know, if we reform the electricity industry, we'll get cheaper power. Still waiting. Well, what about how if we amalgamate all the councils in Auckland, we'll get cheaper rates and we won't actually have a behemoth spending millions on Miola Road at $750,000 per level crossing? 28 of them. Point Chev must be a very, must be a very dangerous suburb, Point Chev to require 28 raised platform um, uh, pedestrian crossings. I mean, you know, I, I th- have they got like a whole bunch of hoons out there or is it is it more, you know, hippies like uh, clearly, um, Russell Brown or Simon Wilson on their electric bikes that are running people over? Clearly they don't have facial recognition. <laughs> they, they, I think Point Chef should have facial recognition. Everyone driving along Miola Road with their 28 bumps, should be facially recognised. Anyone that grimaces, that's it. They can't drive me all the road anymore. Well, what about if they decide that we shouldn't really be driving at all and all vehicles need to have uh, facial recognition and you've used the car three times this week, you've driven 500 kilometres, that's far too far. Um, you know, we've got 15-minute cities and you're 20 minutes out of your where your house is, so the car stops working. I, I just can't wait for that. Can you imagine how harmonious and beautiful the city would be if everyone was pinned up in their own in their own three block area? It's <laughs> <laughs> just ridiculous. But that's the thing, right? It, it is a slippery slope because if it works here, then other uh, companies will do it. And and whilst foodstuffs and and Woolworths have got the you know the financial wherewithal to do this. Eventually, technology gets to uh, you know become ubiquitous, and then it infiltrates down. You know, can you imagine it? Um, facial recognition at the local dairy. Uh, no cigarettes for you. Oh, right, you've had too many. You've had too many I, packets of chips this week. Yeah, and I tell you something: facial recognition at the ATM machine. Why are you depositing that cash? Why are you withdrawing cash? You know, I mean, from my perspective, technology, as you said, always gets cheaper. And once you get to a certain tipping point, then everyone can afford it. You just need to look at home security systems now with all the uh, cameras on the internet. That is ridiculously cheap compared with even 15 years ago. So facial recognition... You needed to mortgage your um, house and uh, sell the left arm of your firstborn to afford a a CCTV system in your house. Um, You know, you're right. Now you can get it uh, delivered via Amazon in about a week um, for three-fifths or five-eighths of stuff all. Yep, and the, the, the best thing of all about facial recognition is, guess what? You know, 
we'll be able to identify those pesky folks who insist upon, you know, having law and order, who insist upon uh, a, a decent standards in society. We could isolate all of them and, and, you know, we could stop them buying food at the supermarket. We could stop them buying petrol or oh, they'd quickly reform. They'd all, you'd all have to think the same. Oh, I guess that's called the social credit score, is it? Oh, I wonder where that's been used before. Mm, exactly. I noticed that um, some Maori groups have come out against it, and I'm just wondering if it's because they're worried the barcodes on some people's chins are going to um, set off the system. <laughs> I'll yeah, probably get in I'm, trouble for that. I'm comment. not sure that. I'm not sure that'd be the work, but you could just imagine that people got um, QR codes tattooed on them, and the facial recognition system went bananas over the QR code that they read. I mean, there's always a way around these things. And right. what, are people going to stuff, um, or, or, or perhaps people will perennially wear masks because, you know, COVID is, is so dangerous, you just have to wear a mask. Yeah, we're and on facial the 27th, recognition isn't. We're on the 27th wave and we need to have you wearing masks at the supermarket, but everyone doesn't want to do that anymore. So what we'll do is we'll bring in facial recognition and we'll make you wear them. The 27th wave, it sounds like you're a bit of a surfer there, Cam. Well, you know what they say about every seventh wave's the big one. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Is, is this facial recognition the seventh wave? Oh, I just can't believe the short-sightedness. Mind you, I've got a bone to pick with um, Woolworths. Those people are the people that instigated the plastic ban plastic bag ban, and I am a one-man crusade for bringing back plastic shopping bags because, actually, I want to save the orangutans. I don't like the idea of rainforests being chopped down to make useless paper bags. I like multi-use shopping bags. Bring them back, I say. Well, you know, I, I worked for Food Town when I was a nipper, and uh, I can remember the big fuss about paper bags. We, oh, we've got to get rid of paper bags. The orangutans are dying. Um, you know, it, regardless of whether we used um, wood that came from rainforests, in New Zealand we don't. Uh, so all of our paper bags came from Kinleith. And, uh, and so we had this big push to get rid of paper bags, and they brought out plastic bags. And, of course, now we've got to save the turtles, and, uh, and we've got to save, you know, um, God knows what else from these plastic bags. And so Do you not just say orangutans aren't trendy anymore? I don't think so. I think the problem is is they um, you know, a bit hairy and um they don't look really that lovable. And so, you know, it's pretty it's like trying to love a rat. Um not the most important thing is would the facial recognition be able to tell the difference between me and an orangutan? I, I, I'd have to check up and, and get back to you on that. Maybe my wife would have something to say as well. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, we've gone from um, Cam's buddies tonight, we've gone from facial recognition of mice and rats to facial recognition of orangutans. So a broad spectrum of speciesism. <laughs> we, we cater to all tastes. <laughs> exactly. All right, Miles, thanks very much for your call, and we'll speak next week on Cam's Buddies. Thank you, Cam. See you later. See you, bye. My buddies are awesome. Once again, we've got common sense from them all. I'm so blessed to have such a great bunch of mates and new buddies to share anything with, and they're so wise, and as I said before, 
speak common sense to these issues. Tell us who you think made the best comment this week of Cam's Buddies and why by emailing inbox at realitycheck.radio or text to 2057. And now it's time for the mailbag. Got some comments, as I knew we would, with my interview with Ashley Church. Uh, This one's from Facebook, from Amanda. Ashley Church is amazing to listen to, such depth of knowledge. Great interview, Cam. And Rick says, hi, Cam, these bad things happen to the Jews because Satan hates God's chosen people. So to piss God off, Satan targets the Jews. A bit simplistic, but true. Love your shows. Mike says, well, Cam, what a great way to start the new year with such intelligent and considered conversation. Ashley Church really has his ducks in a row with his fact sheet. And Don Brash is still a voice of reason after all these years. And Liz says, excellent commentary, Cam. Please keep it up. Blessings. And we got some negative feedback from Jason. Hi, I hate to be emailing with negative feedback, but RCR really needs to stop broadcasting the sort of disgusting war propaganda that was served up to us by Cam and Ashley Church recently. Good journalism and interviewing needs to be fairly critical, ask difficult questions of guests and play devil's advocate where appropriate. It was an appalling effort by Cam, which made the biased reporting by the mainstream look fair and balanced by comparison. I don't have time to go on a detailed account of everything that was wrong, but for Cam to attempt to justify the excessive force and killing of women and children in Gaza because the Allies used disproportionate force in Dresden and Hiroshima, seriously? So what governments are okay to commit war crimes if other allied governments has done the same in the past. I think it would be good to set up a debate with Ashley and someone who would challenge his war propaganda, or at least, at the very least, have him interviewed by someone who could provide some pushback. However, I do understand that people like him don't like to be challenged, so I doubt that would be possible. Well, Jason, perhaps you should listen to my monologue. Now, comments about Don Brash. Uh, Rick says, hi, Cam. Act in New Zealand First will give National the backbone they need. Love Don. He makes sense. Stuart adds, by the same argument, you could say big business, i.e. Fonterra, controls the media through its advertising budget. And I'd agree with you there, Stuart. I've just listened to Cam talking to Dr. Brash. There is a lot of discussion at the moment regarding the so-called principles of the treaty. Something that appears to be missing from all of this discussion, as far as I can see, is this. Most legislation starts off with the name of the act that has been passed, followed by what the act is endeavouring to achieve, and then what follows are definitions of what words in the act mean, so there will not be any confusion. What I cannot understand is why we have acts of parliament that say that the act must comply with the principles of the treaty, but fail to define exactly what must be complied with. Perhaps David Seymour Bill would sort this anomaly out. And that's a very good comment from you, Lyndon, and I appreciate it. Now, Cam's buddies. Sam says, hi, Cam. Great to have you back. Enjoyed the show. Don't agree with a lot of what Ashley has to say, but fair enough that he gets to say them and has freedom of his expression. Don Brash was solid, but the best by far is the buddies. Enjoy them all and appreciate the time they give us listeners each time. Always feels like we're gate-crashing at a private dinner table. Take good gear, Cam. Catch you next week. And Joel says, Hi, how good was Lindley on your Cam's buddies? Would like to hear more, please, as she has some incredible mana and great ideas to come back 
to underlying human principles as a starting point for discussions. Anonymous Comment says, Hi, Lindley, it was good to have you on Cam's Buddies tonight. And Beth adds, Well done, Lindley. Didn't she do well? A natural. I hope you'll have her back, Cam. Great show. Anonymous one says, put the Maori text of the treaty's three articles into Google Translate and compare how close it is to the English text translation. Not a principle mentioned in either text. And Anne says, Cam, I always feel bad when you ask which buddy is the best. They're all the best. They're all different and funny, and together they make an entertaining show. Now we've got a long one here from Karen. The perspective given by all of Cam's buddies hit the nail right on the head when discussing the treaty principles bill. The bearing of a butt and thrusting of a bare lower pelvic appendix was the ultimate insult to our democratically elected leaders. It was a disgrace that went unchecked. The hypocrisy of these elite activists at what was supposed to be a welcoming ceremony was clearly evident. Congratulations to your buddy that spoke about this behaviour. Lindley spoke about the effect this radical change is having on everyday Kiwis, and she was spot on. Even though my long-standing partner has significant Maori DNA, I've become cautious around Maori when I once enjoyed their company. I doubt if I will ever go to a marae again. The avalanche of insulting narrative by some leaders with Maori DNA, directed unchecked at people with no Maori DNA, has had an overall destructive effect even though it is the perspective of only some. Top points also to your buddy who mentioned the media's role in helping whip up frenzied actions and division in New Zealand with their distortions of the truth and significant airtime given to divisive narrative. Over the last six years, MSM has been the main culprits when it comes to undermining democracy in New Zealand. Keep up the great work, Cam. I look forward to your program every week. Thanks for those comments, Karen, and that's the mailbag for this week. Right, that's it for The Crunch this week. We've put another show out to air, and uh, we're getting into the new year fast and furious. This year, it's going to be very busy politically, with the new government making inroads on delivering their promises, and they've just delivered another one this week, the axing of three waters. Plus, of course, there's the big game in world politics, the US elections in November, and it appears the media and the establishment have turned on Joe Biden, who increasingly looks out to lunch, dinner, and everywhere in between. Let's see how they white-hand him into quitting. Kirsten Murphy works tirelessly in challenging the globalist health authorities, and as I've said before, it takes many hands to make light work. The globalists are like rust, though. They never sleep. So we mustn't let our guard down. Morris Williamson again gave us some good insights into the carry-on in Auckland Council. This is going to be a regular feature on The Crunch, and I'm looking forward to more updates. Now, if you're using the RCR app, you can easily get all of our replays as well as listen live. Just select The Crunch in the app, and that'll be all the replays from my show. A big thanks to the team that put this all together and makes the show the wonderful show that it is. It's been a real pleasure having you all back this week. I'm loving all your feedback. I really enjoy talking to so many people, sharing their thoughts on politics, life, and everything in between. So a big shout out to you all, and thank you for listening and having faith in me and The Crunch as we continue to explore this wonderful game 
of politics. Now, I've been sent a few more photos of me riding around on the back of a bus. See if you can capture them in the wild and send them in and make that a challenge for you for next week. I'm looking forward to seeing the photos. Don't forget email suggestions to inbox at realitycheck.radio or photos. And let's make this show the best political show in New Zealand. Stay tuned for a breakfast show repeat coming up next with features including Money Talks with my mate Farzan Irani and the indomitable and fearless Lindsay Perigo. You've been listening to The Crunch with Cam Slater. Remember, you can check out the replays for today's show on our website at www.realitycheck.radio forward slash replays. Tune in every Thursday at 4 p.m. for more with Cam Slater. Right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio.